Well, Russ, I'm down to the last quarter of my bottle of Knob Creek Single Barrel Reserve nine year, and there are no more left in the stores. What are we going to (laughs) do? I've got some uh, in my stash over here, so you can come over and uh, we can enjoy some. They they still got the ordinary like nine year, but this one was really special. It's kind of sad. It's gone. I hope they. I hope it comes back. I hope it comes back this year. You know, I grew. Really close to that one after Booker's disappeared uh, and yeah. before that, Pappy Van Winkle. So, yeah, we were see. talking about it being the official uh, bourbon of the <laughs> the adult music <laughs> podcast. It's our official adult beverage, and now it doesn't exist in Japan anymore. Maybe it doesn't exist anywhere. We don't know. Yeah, I've got you know, two and three quarters uh, bottles of it, so we'll see what happens. Well, I'm coming over. <laughs> okay, yeah, anytime, anytime. <laughs> we'll do another live show soon, I hope, anyway. All right. I don't know, but you know, I think we're going to have to wait till summer for that and get a summer barbecue going. Oh, we can do that too. Things are getting busy here. Things have warmed up. Actually, it was an early spring here because the cherry blossoms are already out. Yeah. A little bit too early. And then we had a bunch of rain today. So I hope the blossoms stay intact so we can yeah. see a bit of those. It's unusual for them to sort of all make it out before April. Yeah, I'll go check. I'll go check them out tomorrow. I took a few pictures and put them on my personal Instagram so if anybody wants to look into that, you can look right. me up. All right. So who are we? Well, you're listening to Adult Music. That's the podcast with music for the mature mind. It's episode 108. And it's been a really good week for us here because we had a fabulous interview published this week. If you haven't heard it yet, you got to go hear it. And that was with the pianist composer, Nicholas Sivalov from Sweden. And... Well, that was just a really great interview. I had a great time talking to him. I did too. He was really, uh, he was really eloquent. He had a lot to say. It was a ideal interviewee, let's say. He just he talked a lot and gave in depth answers to our questions. He's a very open minded musician and composer, and he's you know done a lot of different things. He's recorded yeah. a, a really wide range of piano repertoire all the way from Bach up to you know his own compositions and now he's you know composing for orchestra which is how we came to know him and but he's also done other interesting things and I tried to get to the heart of that genius of the (laughs) process of composition but it's still a bit of a mystery to me how those ideas come to him and then get painted onto the orchestra. Yeah, we'll keep trying to find out as we talk to different yeah. composers. I remember seeing a, a bunch of interviews with um, pianists and how they manage to play the way they do, and they, they really don't know. It's it's almost like channeling in a way. I mean, they've done a lot of practice, but there's that extra thing. What is it, you know? That's what I've gathered from uh, you know reading of other people. Tom Harrell, uh, yeah. jazz trumpeter yeah. and composer, who I've you know, really enjoyed over the years. And he sort of describes that, you know, these ideas just coming through you. Mm. And as a musician myself, you know, playing that when ideas come, you're not really sure where they come from. And then you get other people involved and things get transformed. And then when you play music, it's, it's not always like this, but when it arises to that kind of pure flow state, you sort of step outside of yourself and you feel like you're watching the music play you. But, you know, you still hope to gather a little bit of insight into the real genius level of people creating these really huge, you know, especially an orchestra. Where do those tones come from? How do they get assigned to the instrument sections? I I always wondered about that process, but I'm still kind of, 
you know, left in the dark about how that all happens. But anyway, it's a really enlightening interview. So if you haven't heard it, please go check that out. We want to get some more downloads. And I think Sivalov's name is going to become really, really well known around the world in the future for all the things that he's doing. Let's hope so. I, I like this music a lot. Yeah. We're looking forward to the recording of the rest of those symphonies, especially number two. I hope that comes out soon. But I think yeah. he just recorded another piano concerto. So... Okay, well, we'll find out soon enough. I think we're in touch with him now, so he'll uh, That's right. he'll let us know if there are any new projects coming out. Yeah. Okay. Now you you had said music for the mature minds. Speaking of mature minds, we got our first um negative feedback, shall we say? Yeah, about the first two weeks one ago. In 107 episodes. In 107 episodes. Now here's the thing. I was kind of hoping it would be some disgruntled listener complaining about something we said. Right, but but it's it's not. It's somebody who who didn't listen to the podcast <laughs> complaining about something that he thinks that we think. Okay, and it, in fact, it's one of the artists that we uh, talked about in classical music. Mahanas Fahani wrote to us. Now, just to give you a little background, we talked about his album, and when we put the um, albums on the um, website, we tag each of the artists yeah. just so they know that we've um, done that. And he apparently wasn't too happy with the tag and he wrote back to us in a private chat this was not a public uh, thing mm. but i'm going to tell you what he said the first thing he writes is he writes this this is his exact words is it really necessary to tag me in your post comma and if he had stopped there it would have been okay we could have said no, i guess we don't have to no we don't have to do that but then he writes particularly when it's presented by people calculated to misunderstand my work before hearing a note of it all right now <laughs> now what that means is if he had listened to the podcast, we'd know that we listened to this album and two others of his very mm -hmm. thoroughly. Mm -hmm. So obviously he didn't even bother to listen. He thinks that we're kind of against him, sort of. So this guy's got some kind of chip on his shoulder. I don't know what's going mm -hmm. on with him. Anyway, I wrote back a very nice uh, response on the chat, but he didn't check it. You know, you can kind of see that uh, whether the person looked at the, ch the uh, mm -hmm. chat or not by the green check mark, but mm -hmm. there's none of that. It's just still gray. So we decided to go to his agent. So we wrote to his agent. We wrote to his agency. So I wrote to the vice president of the agency. And no answer there either. We're just being ghosted or just they didn't yeah. get the message. So now we're putting it out here on the podcast. Um, we're not looking for an apology or anything like that. But we do feel like he or his agent owes us a listen because um, this is out of line. Yeah, you know how I feel about this is, on the one hand, a couple of weeks back, uh, we were looking at uh, that one guy. I guess he's a pretty, I don't know if he's respected, but he gets some attention as a classical music uh, critic. Right. Uh, he's a little kind of old guy who uh, really <laughs> panned a record that we liked a lot. Yeah. And without delving into any, any true musical reasons for it, and, yeah. you know, I think that guy's... <laughs> Well, I don't want to lose our clean rating status. It would be much easier to describe all this stuff. Yeah, but the, the guy you are talking about, though, he's he's a kind of um, symptomatic of a lot of classical music uh, critics and really is part of the problem with the whole industry. This is music that we should be listening to, and there are people out there just putting you off of it. It's really horrible. Yeah. yeah you should be listening to this music. It's really great. You know, I pick the jazz picks and you pick the classical picks, but I never pick music that I don't like because I don't want to say negative things about it. Me neither. It. Now, sometimes I'll have like a negative thing to say about the uh, the performance. Sure. Or it's, it's let, it let me down sort of, yeah. but because in classical music is a little different because there works you know, and you have sort right. of like a catalog of older recordings mm -hmm. that in your head that you can compare it to. Yeah. So you're kind of in that, but jazz is a little different. You're not really, you're getting something fresh every time. Sure. And the other mm -hmm. thing, 
is I don't even actually pick a lot of music that I like just because it's really famous. Like I didn't talk about the new Brad Meldow album because it was plastered on every jazz magazine. Mm. I figure anyone remotely familiar with jazz is going to know that this is out there. And I wanted to use this podcast as a kind of discovery for myself and then a sharing with other people. So I'm generally enthused about the music I pick here. So I can understand artists who are sort of sensitive to negative reviews. Yeah, and yeah. I've read that some artists never read reviews or Which even listen to their own wise, recordings, yeah. <laughs> you know, once they've gone through the edit process. Well, I never I never read my book because I was just sick and tired of it by the time <laughs> exactly. it was done, you know. Oh, by the way, my novel, Extreme Music on Amazon.com, it's it's kind of about a guy like Mahanis Fahani in this, <laughs> um, in this uh, review. So you can read that. What he <laughs> ended up doing is, is doing exactly what he accused us. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly what he did. Interesting. Yeah. 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 And on the other hand, with that kind of thing, the way I feel is when you make it to the big leagues in any field, in sports, in music, you should have a thick enough skin in order to sort of uh, slough off any sort of criticism because it's going to come. That's one thing. But you should also have a little bit of grace to deal with it. You know why? Because it's classical music. It's jazz music. That's less than 2% of the listenership. And if you record also for one of the few remaining labels that you can't listen to unless you shell out your money to buy <laughs> those recordings, records, yeah. you should be appreciative a little bit of anybody mm-hmm. who's giving you a little bit of free publicity. Uh, yeah, so right. yeah, it left a bad taste in my mouth, but yeah, yeah well, we go on. <laughs> we go on. I, I will say this though. Um, there's no worries to Mr. Esfahani because we will not be hearing a note of his upcoming recording <laughs> of, um, of the notebook for Anna Magdalena Bach, which is being released in May. And if we don't hear from him or his agent in, you know, by the end of the year, he's going to, he's, he's up for a special award in our year end uh, <laughs> episode, which we're trying to come up with a name with for right now, or maybe we won't have to, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we like right. to keep things on the positive side here because music should be something enriching for your life yeah. and uh, no negative vibes about that. Anyway, yeah, let's get on into, uh, new music for this week. And before we do that, uh, as we said, we're the podcast with Music for the Mature Mind, bringing you three new classical and three new jazz releases every week. We talk about them, go through them track by track, point out the things that we like, things that we find curious, and we hope to get everybody listening to classical and jazz music more. And we also include all the information that you need to access those by streaming. And hopefully you'll decide to also maybe purchase some of your favorite recordings as well, Mike, Mike purchases more music than anybody that I know, but I also try to uh, support the artists. Yeah, although this weekend is, I'm, I'm cutting <laughs> back now. I'm going to wait. I'm doing most, see, this is, I'm changing this year. I've got to go by uh, streaming. And this is uh, yeah, kind of making me uh, anxious because uh, how am I going to get all these um, this information? One of the great things about classical music CDs is that you get a booklet with them that's sort right. of... Um, that's usually pretty informative about uh, the music you're hearing. Some of them aren't, yeah. <laughs> like one of them we're going to hear tonight. But yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a problem. With, you know, streaming metadata is not really yeah. encompassing of all the things you need to know with classical music. Right. So, And especially if you're doing a contemporary composer, as we have um, contemporary composers on all three classical albums I'm doing tonight, <laughs> you, you really need some kind of background on what's happening to, to sort of help right. you through if you're going to talk about the piece. I mean, you can just... If you're a listener, you can just sit back and listen to it and get your impressions from it. But yeah. um, we're on a podcast here. We have to sort of <laughs> we should know kind of try extra. to elucidate yeah. it a bit for you. So it's gonna. I want to know a bit more about that. Anyway, for all this music that we're going to talk about in the episode description, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music 
And also at the top of the description, you can get a link to the full episode playlist where you can get all the music in one place. And that's on Deezer, our favorite CD quality streaming platform that comes from France. You can also catch the podcast there. Uh, just look us up, Adult Music Podcast. You get the playlist and the podcast all in one place. Now, if you don't see the full description or recording list on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, go over to Podbean and everything's clear. The links are easy to follow. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, wherever you listen to us, please follow, subscribe, join, and also tell a friend. Uh, we need some more audience here and word of mouth through people who like music is the best way to find new listeners. Also, if you just take a moment, give us a ranking or write a review. If you, especially if you listen to Apple uh, podcasts, we haven't gotten a new review or ranking in quite a while there. So yeah. click those stars. Give us five stars. It, it, it helps cost us. Yeah, give us five stars, and please. Yeah. What that will do is get us listed in the browsing category recommendations among all the podcasts that don't exist anymore. Right. <laughs> because they still recommend and promote podcasts that haven't been active for more than a year. And <laughs> in Japan, where we are located and we get listed, we're mixed in with all these K-pop podcasts. And there's just hundreds of them. And I don't know how there could be that much to talk about K-pop. But, you know, to each their own. Anyway, that will help us grow our audience anyway. You can also come over, check us out on Facebook there. I put up new releases in jazz throughout the week. There's a bunch of good stuff that came up this week. Mike put up some interesting classical information with an odd-looking trumpet. Looks like yeah. something under my sink in there. Definitely want to do that one. <laughs> we hear that one pretty soon. It looked like yeah. something under the sink, didn't it? All right, we'll, we'll program that one soon. You can leave a message there. You can see our handsome faces, and you can also see the interaction with the artists. And we've had some really nice stuff with uh, Nicholas Sivalov and also Tim Collins, who uh, we featured last week. And yeah. uh, I got in touch with him, and he turns out to be a really nice guy, also from upstate New York, but now he's in Germany, and he's coming to Japan. So we found that out. I don't know if the dates are going to line up when he's going to be in uh, Osaka. It looks like it's going to be a weeknight, so we have to just keep our eyes on that. But we get a lot of artist interaction and feedback, and you can be part of that if you come check us out and join up on Facebook. And you can leave a comment there. Uh, also, if you want to get in touch directly by email, we'd be happy to hear from you, answer any questions or take your comments there. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. And additionally, we're teaming up with some other music-related podcasts, hoping to share our audiences, like-minded listeners. So we'd like to recommend to you Tom Galger's podcast, Something Came From Baltimore. It's an interview podcast, jazz, blues, R&B, based in Baltimore, but not about that. It's all about the music. Every week he's got some well-known musicians on there. We've also got famous interviews in Neon Jazz. That's from Joe Domino. He's got artists, musicians, and writer interviews. We've got a more jazz-oriented podcast, Same Difference, Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard, where they look at several versions of the same jazz standard every week. They play little cuts from each version. They discuss the history of the original and look at the different versions. So if you're into jazz music, want to up your standard knowledge, get a little bit of history, which I needed this week for uh, some of the music we're going to talk about in the jazz section check that out all the links will be at the end of the description if you stay on to the end of the podcast you can hear a little audio promotion clip from each one of those at the very end so please check those out yeah so in classical music tonight i've got a i've actually got a theme it's our second ever all women composers theme okay so uh we've done one of these before and we had uh, women jazz in that one too but not today we're kind of splitting the program a bit right i've got trumpets sounding in jazz tonight so we'll go from ladies to trumpets midway yeah 
just a joke in there, but we're going to well, let it pass. No, I clean rating. <laughs> we can't do it. <laughs> All right. Yeah. We, we want to keep our audience. Anyway, so our first album is called, I love this title, Poetess Symphonique. Hmm. Yeah, it's really pretty. Tongue, it's a French yeah. title. I just—that's a great word, symphonique, yeah. like symphonic. I they, like it. Just that Q U E at the end just makes it really beautiful. Tonight we have another one of these little kind of parody titles as well. I think we're going to call this what um, the orchestrated woman. I think we're we going for <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, you know, sort of like the illust- the illustrated man. I was thinking yeah, you know, that uh, book, something the orchestrated woman. Why not? Sure, <laughs> maybe. But and if we if that's not the title, we've maybe thought better of it. But here it is. We've mentioned it here, so there you go. Okay, so Poète Symphonique, this is on the performed by the Orchestre National de Metz Grand Est, conducted by or directed by David Ryland. And this is on the La Dolce Volta label, the first time we've ever had this label mm. on this podcast. They're located in Compiègne, France. They're kind of, I guess they're a smaller label. I have to say, I have the CD of this one, and it's a, um, it's kind of like a hard board cover that kind of opens like a book and the oh. CD is in one of the sleeves. It's really a nice um, package. So if you're interested in this, um, I would recommend buying it. It's really nice. The booklet notes, they're okay. They give you enough information, but mm. I, I think I would have liked more. But it's a beautiful package anyway. And a nice uh, cover design too, looking a bit uh, Art Deco, I guess, on the front. I don't know what that is. <laughs> anyway, I don't know my 20th century art styles. All right. So what we're featuring on this album is... Um, Women composers from the uh, late 19th and early 20th century in orchestral music. Now, this is sort of new for me. A lot of the uh, women composers from this era, I'm either hearing chamber music or mm. songs. And right. this, these are big orchestral works, and I was happy to hear it. And it turns out this is a pretty great album uh, of music that's all well worth hearing. Yeah. So my favorite one of the three. Okay. Well, yeah, I, maybe for me too. I liked... Um, I like the last one as well, but we'll get to that. Okay, so this this actually features um, four composers on it. Most of them have passed away by now. The first one is Augusta. I'm guessing she says her name Olmes because she's mm. um, Anglo-Irish and she was naturalized as a French citizen in 1873. So it looks like she took her name Holmes and mm. changed it, put Olmes. the accent on it for, to Olmes, I'm guessing. I really don't know. Anyway, she lived from 1847 to 1918. This piece is called Andromede, and it's a poem symphonique, so a symphonic poem. What a symphonic poem is, is a it's an orchestral piece that um, is telling a story through its um, tones, and it's helpful to know what that story is first. Now, this is different than, say, a sonata or a regular symphony because in that case, you have like a form, like a sonata, you have certain expectations mm-hmm. of what's going to happen in a sonata or in a rondo or in these things. In a symphonic poem, you really don't know. It could be anything. It depends on how the composer decides to um, interpret the story that she's mm-hmm. or poem that she's drawing from. You really need to know what that is, and then you can kind of work out what the uh, episodes are. So in this case, it's about uh, Andromeda in English. She was a princess and rather famously chained to a rock as a sacrifice to the monster of the abyss. And uh, she's saved by Perseus, who is riding on Pegasus. And if you've ever seen the movie um, Clash of the Titans, there are two of them. I recommend the Ray Harryhausen one from 1980, the stop motion yeah, one. Yeah. yeah. With um, Harry Hamlin as Perseus, <laughs> which is really weird seeing the guy from uh, what that lawyer show in a, <laughs> in a Greek kind of <laughs> outfit there. It's, it's really odd. Mm. But uh, all that great Harry, Ray Harry has a stop motion. And you can see this scene at the end of the movie where um, 
Perseus shows up, you know, at the rock where the monster is about to devour the princess Andromeda, and he holds up, um, he slays the monster by holding up Medusa's head, which he had severed earlier in the movie. Now, in this case, there's no mention of Medusa. It looks like he's uh, killed the monster with a sword, which um, seems pretty uh, <laughs> brave indeed. Okay. So, this is what we hear. We hear her being chained to the rock. The monster appears. Perseus appears. Kills the monster. Happy ending. Olmes uh, provided a program to explain the action, and the end of the score uh, depicts the last two lines of Holmes's note. And this is what, what it is. Winged poetry and immortal love will bear you to the true gods amid the stars. So that's the sparkling ending of the piece the last minute or so. Uh, keep an ear out for that. Anyway, this piece starts out with a brass call. Really cool, huh? This, this is, yeah. First of all, this is a sumptuously recorded mm. piece and album. These are all French or French-based composers, and they really have a sense of... Um, Tone, color, the, yeah, the way, what we think of when we too, think of Debussy. Yeah. And I love that so much mm -hmm. about music. It's one of the first things I latched on to when I started listening to classical music. And this, for me, really came from listening to pop music because, uh, like, or rock music at the time in the 70s because that was all about what you could create in the studio, the sound you could create in the studio. And that mm -hmm. ne led naturally to Debussy and his orchestration and things like that. Okay, so, yeah, so it's a great, there's a great brass call. It kind of reminded me of the beginning of uh, Mahler's Third Symphony a little bit, because that starts with a sort of fanfare as well. And this work has a lot of tone color. I didn't, oh, I didn't write the composition date for this, but um, I would guess it's got to be early 20th century. It could be 1890 or something like that. But uh, this full tone on the brass, this benefits a lot from its, its fantastic recording. This really needed to be recorded well to come across, and it is... The lugubrious music at the beginning depicts Andromeda being led out and chained to the rock as a sacrifice. It, it's got a slightly, I guess, religious quality to it too, because it's sort of a ritual being played out. Mm. I, I should say ritualistic quality, not religious. Uh, the strings that follow at a minute and 40 seconds, I guess, would be her thoughts as she waits to be devoured by the monster. At the four minute mark, there's a new lamenting section in the violins, and several surprising chord changes are brought about by sudden chords. This is a technique reminiscent of Wagner's operas. So she's heavily influenced by Wagner here, not really by Debussy. The light strings and harp at uh, the six-minute mark may indicate the distant appearance of Perseus. That's what I'm interpreting it hmm. as. And indeed, by the seven-minute mark, we're hearing a confident theme accompanied by ominous brass and bass drum rumbling in the background. Ooh, if you have a subwoofer, you want to turn it on. <laughs> For this recording, because the, the the bass is really deep and it comes across really richly on the recording. By seven minutes and thirty six seconds, the battle has begun, and judging by the harmony, Perseus is having no trouble at all <laughs> with this monster. You don't really hear a real <laughs> clash in the music. It just sounds like he's just he's just whomping this thing's butt <laughs> rather effortlessly. It's all very bright, major key, rhythmically dancing. At the 9 minute and 13 second mark, we hear love music. So I'd guess the monster is vanquished and the lovers are riding to the stars on Pegasus. And by the 11th minute, there's a gentle chugging waltz rhythm with strings playing melodic material over it. The piece has a heavenly ending, as I mentioned, you know, echoing those words that I mentioned at the beginning. This really, if you haven't heard this piece, it's really unmissable. It's, it's a real feast for the ears. So it's Augusta Olmes, Andromeda, or Andromeda. The next two pieces on this album are by a composer that I really love. Her early death at uh, 24 years yeah. old was a great loss for music because uh, Lily Boulanger, um, the younger sister of Nadia Boulanger, who became one of the great 
teachers of the 20th century and who was also a bit of a, a composer herself, but she kind of didn't follow that track. Lily was following it. She won the Prix de Rome, the only woman to ever have done so. All the music she wrote was really fascinating. She would have been one of the greats of the 20th century had she lived. She suffered from chronic illness, mm-hmm. uh, beginning with a case of bronchial pneumonia when she was two years old. And this just went on for her whole life and it weakened her immune system until finally intestinal tuberculosis ended her life at 24 years old. Mm-hmm. So a really great loss for music there. Uh, we did have Nadia, though. Her sister went on to uh, hold um, sort of classes and she taught some of the great composers of the 20th century, like um, Aaron Copeland, mm-hmm. Leonard Bernstein, Alberto Hinastera, Philip Glass, and many others. Wow. And also Astor Piazzolla. Hmm. Wow. Amazing. It's quite a classroom there. Wow. Yeah. Well, they weren't all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> I have a video of her teaching and she's just astonishing the things that she picks up from music. Hmm. Just a really magical person. That's Nadia. And anyway, this is her younger sister, Lily, who composed this piece. It's called Don Matin de Printemps. This is um, from a spring morning. And this starts with chugging strings. There's kind of an energy. So I'm guessing spring gives us energy. This is a good piece for right now, in fact, Mm. because spring is upon us. It's kind of brief at five minutes. These chugging strings outline the beat. So they fall on each of the 4-4, the beats of the 4-4 rhythm. As various orchestral timbres outline melodies. You get the sense of a busy spring morning. And there's a gorgeous use of orchestral timbre. Again, we're going to hear this throughout this album. All of these composers write really well for the uh, colors of the orchestra. And uh, Lily Boulanger, like her sister, was an admirer of Claude Debussy, who was really one of the great orchestrators of all time, really, <laughs> you know, of any composer who ever lived, as was Ravel. But Debussy really was earlier, so he gets most of the credit. The rhythm makes you think of a traditional dance, like a spring round. We've heard music like this about spring uh, before. There is a um, Debussy piece called the Ronde de Printemps, which is part of his um, image for orchestra. So um, you can hear something... It doesn't sound the same, but it's sort of a spring dance. This is juxtaposed with a 6-8 rhythm that has a lighter dance quality later on. Again, I love the orchestration of the counter melody given to the winds at around 3 minutes and 45 seconds. This is another thing I love about this because you have a theme and then there'll be some sort of counter melody or accompaniment and that accompaniment will have the more interesting tone colors on it than the melody will, which will often just be strings. And that just really gets Mm. me every time. I just love it. Um, we get back the excitable opening rhythm at around the 3 minute and 30 second mark, and this builds to a rich forte, attenuated, then gradually built up again until the last colorful chord. All right, another Lily Boulanger piece. These are, these are the first two orchestra works by her I've ever heard. I know her songs very well, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. The second piece is a little longer at 11 minutes. It's called D'un soir triste, and that means um, of uh, or from a sad evening. And this piece is in contrast to the previous one. It has a brooding quality with its trudging rhythm played by low reeds. Again, a really fantastic sound. Mm. Much of the thematic material at the beginning is by winds and the music crescendos to an anxious sounding texture. Then at a minute, 50 seconds dies down to something more solemn and mournful and beautifully orchestrated. The harmony in the strings at two minutes and 15 seconds has that early 20th century warmth that I love. And another crescendo is built up. Uh, There's a harsh climax reached just before the three-minute mark and a bigger, harsher one at three minutes and 30 seconds. I like the decrescendo and loosening of tension up to the five-minute and 15-second mark, followed by a thoughtful string theme. I should mention these pieces are all being beautifully performed and conducted 
I've said it already. I really can't get enough of that. The tempos are all really well chosen too. These works all breathe exceptionally well. Uh, it all feels so right. And uh, the tiny details in the score register through the speakers. And again, there's a lovely atmospheric ending chord. Tracks four through six oh, are a piece wait, by... Wait, wait, wait. What? You're not going to talk about the huge gong in there? <laughs> oh, I, well, do you, do you want to... Are you going to say something about it? Well, yeah, it was just a, a really huge like gong gongs, after though. the th thick brass lines. And then it comes back, too, with that more ominous brass. So, yeah, look out for that. <laughs> you get to hear it more than once in that piece. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. Um, a full yeah. palette of tone colors with a huge gong ringing out. There you go. Always good to have a gong. <laughs> The next piece uh, tracks four through six by Mel Bonis. Mm. Now, her uh, full name is Melanie Hélène Bonis, and she married a guy called Edouard Domange, so she's sometimes called uh, Melanie Hélène Bonis Domange. Mm. Uh, her husband was an industrialist who encouraged her uh, compositional um, career. Bonis lived from 1858 to 1937, and these are a set of works called Femme de Legende, so legendary women, and this was written in 1909, the modernist period. Okay, and the first legendary woman is uh, Cleopatra. Uh, this is called Le Songe de Cleopatra, which means the dream of Cleopatra. What might that dream be? Well, we don't have words, but uh, we're gonna just have to go by the uh, melody here. It starts gently with a pinging harp on this beats. Then a modal figure painting a picture of, I guess, Egypt at the time. Um, I don't know if ancient Egypt would be, but I guess all ancient cultures would be modal. So we have her setting there. Uh, it's a gorgeous opening, sensitively scored and performed. At a minute and 22 seconds, the warm strings come in and play a romantic theme uh, mm -hmm. with modal flurries in the winds. I really liked that. Like the, uh, the wind, the, the main string theme is romantic. And then you have these modal sort of movements in the winds. The winds play a large role in this piece, often providing these sort of ancient modal atmosphere or timbral decoration, while the strings tend to bring the thematic material forward. Um, there's some pretty string writing in the higher end from around 5 minutes to 20 seconds. I like the delicacy of the scoring, very French. She is a woman yeah. of her culture. <laughs> the ending is quiet and features a trilling clarinet, really beautiful sound, great orchestration here. The second work uh, is Ophelia, that's Ophelia from uh, Hamlet. This uh, starts with a set of sparkling arpeggiated chords in the harp. The French write exceptionally well for the harp and Mel Bonis is no exception. This is a piece that moves gently, if we remember Ophelia's character from uh, Hamlet. Again, the strings move the thematic material forward as winds tend to provide atmosphere and decoration. But attention is nevertheless drawn to the winds and light percussion because of the beauty of timbral combinations. Uh, the piece remains gentle throughout, despite some harmonically unsteady sections, uh, perhaps depicting Ophelia's unsteady mental state. As we remember, she uh, goes mad uh, <laughs> before she drowns in Hamlet. Anyway, another gently chiming, glowing ending is heard to this uh, briefer piece. And the last one is track six, Salome. Salome, of course, did the uh, Dance of the Seven Veils for King Herod and asked for the head of John the Baptist. This is a story that's in the... Uh, the Gospels in the Bible. Uh, this has open fifth chords in the bass at the beginning, which always kind of gives me an earthy kind of feeling, you know, you kind of mm. something primordial. And uh, that's sort of what Salome's dance really is. She's a young girl. We have an unsettling, slightly aggressive atmosphere to this piece. 
It's contrasted with the light splashing material heard at 23 seconds, which I'm guessing depicts her youth. That disappears, and we hear an oboe playing a modal figure. Again, we have that um, Middle Eastern feel, I guess, in this case. It's also ancient, mm. but um, this, this would be um, Jerusalem at the, in 2,000 years ago. Uh, this continues along with a treading bass line played on the beats by the percussion. The subtle percussion comes across vividly on the recording, and it's ideal for the subwoofer because it really just kind of leaps out a bit, and, but it doesn't you know, obscure anything else. It's fantastic recording. It's got a severely low end to it, too. So if you have a subwoofer, you'll get even those lower frequencies. It's so good. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I have to say, though, Salome comes across as gentler here than, in, than she does in Strauss's opera. <laughs> All right. The last piece um, on the uh, album is by Betsy Jolas. And she's um, born in 1926 and is still among us. She's yes. 96 years old. Mm. This piece is called A Little Summer Sweet. She was born in Paris, and her family moved to America in 1940. So she's what you'd call Franco-American and has been back and forth ever since, really. Uh, her most notable teachers were Darius Mio and Olivier Messiaen. This is a woman who knew all the greats from the 20th century and can still talk about it with, with uh, orchestras of today. A Little Summer Suite was premiered in 2016 when she was 89. Oh. Yeah. There's still hope for us. <laughs> the theme is aimlessness or wandering itinerant music. So hmm. just a, a summer day, nothing to do, just wandering around like your Ulysses, I guess, but no adventures. Music that could land anywhere at any time. And she called it a summer suite because she finished writing it in June. So hmm. no, no deep uh, meaning there. And it's a pretty light piece. It was written for... Um, I don't remember, but Simon Rattle was the conductor of the original uh, performance. I think it was written for the proms, the last night of the proms, or a proms concert, if I recall. Oh, no, 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 it wasn't. I'm sorry. That's not right. It was written for the Berlin Philharmonic when um, huh. uh, Simon Rattle was there, I think. Ah, I should have looked. <laughs> I should have <laughs> written it down. Anyway. Okay, this has um, seven sections, and uh, some of them are connected and some aren't. The first section is called strolling away, and she's going to use this word strolling a lot, just sort of like a, a light walk. She means a, a leisurely walk that you take for relaxation, basically. There's no real aim to it. I like the opening low orchestration featuring a monophonic line. Harmony comes in more than halfway through this brief section, providing atmosphere, and the wandering line continues until it reaches a climax at a crescendo just at the end. And the next bit, called knocks and clocks, connects to that. This features woody percussion at the beginning, a really appealing sound. Strings eventually come in with a rising, crescendoing line that's interrupted and followed by mysterious open-ended statements and some harsh harmony in here too. There's vivid sound in this section and of course the whole recording, but it really stands out in this section. Track nine, strolling about, so more strolling. A melodic line is passed around to various instruments in the orchestra, a really nice effect. And the, the line that's passed around is reminiscent of the first section, strolling away. Uh, so I'm guessing this is the strolling theme. There's quiet percussion at the end. Track 10, which is the fourth section of the piece, shakes and quakes. This has quickly bowed string chords at the beginning, or one chord at the beginning that's repeated, uh, starts this movement of sudden crescendos and decrescendos on single chords. The shakes and quakes are passed around the orchestra and suddenly go quiet. Track 11, the fifth section, strolling under, so more strolling. And this starts with a low... Ba bassoon in the opening line, a really appealing color to us at the Adult Music Podcast. 
It gets a satisfying reedy sound, and the section is quickly over at 33 seconds. I think we only hear the bassoon in this section. It just has a solo line. Uh, track 12, section 6 here. Chants and cheers. Uh, this starts more brightly with arpeggiated plucked harp as the winds play thematic material. Chords are heard descending later. Uh, this is also a particularly captivating timbral movement with interesting orchestral combinations, and all of them are light. And then our last movement, this is track 13, Strolling Home, connects to the previous movement, and we hear light wisps of themes followed by a trilling flute and string chords wandering off. Excellent low brass are heard at the very end. Uh, one low note on the tuba especially stands out. And the piece ends on percussion and two very quick high string notes. Okay, so I've heard all music by all of these composers except for Jolas before, but this is the first recording I know of their instrumental orchestral music, and it's a real find, a highly appealing music, and I'd say it's even great and couldn't get better performances or recordings. This is really a must hear, especially for fans of orchestral music. Yeah, the Bonis stands out as a more contemporary kind of work with uh, different kind mm. of harmonies. But I would say overall what I found enjoyable about the common point of all these composers in these works is the rich timbres and the identifiable French character, which I really enjoy mm. sort of highlighting those Me too. unique timbres and then how they blend. And they all kind of go into these really dreamy passages that just pull you in. You become part of that scape of sounds and uh, this lush orchestration. Yeah, so I enjoyed them all. Uh, if you like tone colors and that's sort of, especially those early kind of 20th century works where they're, they're modern, but they still have, you know, that sort of romantic kind of uh, atmosphere and French mm. quality to them. They're really rich in colors and the emotional sort of character is pulled out of them really well in this performance. And I found them uh, really exciting and interesting. I don't think I've, I may have heard some of these composers' works before, but I hadn't placed them in my mind. But Yeah, we uh, did chamber works, I think, by yeah. some of them. We heard Mel Bonis before and uh, Augusta Omes. The performances are really good. The recording's very clear as well and definitely worth a listen for orchestral music lovers. We do have at least one listener that I know um, mm. here here in Japan who listens to, who wants me to recommend her works by women composers. Right. right? But here's the thing. If you have women composers, um, there's, there's nothing that would identify them as a woman composer in their music. It's just, you know, there's, there's nothing that kind of says this is a woman that wrote this. But there is a lot that says what their nationality is. There are national yeah. styles, but there's no say male style and women's style in composition. Uh, so I, I find it, it odd. I mean, you listen to women, you want to hear what they're doing and sort of, you know, mm. maybe be inspired by the fact that women are writing it, but it's music. It's, you know, it's an individual thing. Yeah, interestingly, that was the question that's posed in the um, Presto write-up of this recording. Oh yeah. As to whether, you know, gender influences the composition. I would say, well, not on the surface, certainly. I mean, you can make an argument that it, it might somewhere, but I don't know. I think um, just national sort of characteristics are just too strong. You grow up in a culture, and that's really what you bring into the music, your experience of the culture and it, how it uses um, music. And I have to yeah. say, French, uh, I like all kinds of French music, French classical, French jazz, and even French uh, popular music. I've liked a lot of the, uh, the DJs that have come from France as well. Huh. Bands like Daft Punk and Air back mm. in the 90s. 
You All can't right. evade your national background. Well, you can, but you know why would you? You know, it's kind of you're probably well, going to be what you're best at. Giving up your heritage there if you do that, and uh, then of course individual influences. I think maybe male female differences and then sort of other intellectual idiosyncrasies mm. come at a deeper level maybe the the topics you select and uh, the things you want to explore more in the directions of the compositions might come out but those are not always apparent on the surface level and you may mm. not even know them from listening you may need to uh, dig deeper into the intent of the work to get to that level so mm. Yeah, all worth considering, though. Sure. All right, so we go to our next um, composer. They were all contemporary from here on out, by the mm. way. The next uh, composer is Augusta Reed Thomas, American, born in Glen Cove, New York. Oh. And uh, I won't say her age, but I will say she's our age. Oh. <laughs> Around. Welcome to the club. <laughs> Welcome to the club, yeah. All right, and this album is called Dreamcatcher, and it's by a violinist by the name of Clarissa Bevilacqua who was born in Milan and grew up in Chicago. And she's 21 years old. This is her debut oh album. So um, I can't remember belonging to that club. That was a long time ago. <laughs> 21. Wow. Yeah, I was in rock bands then, I think. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Anyway, the uh, BBC National Orchestra of Wales, um, conducted by Vimbagi Kaziboni, accompanied her in Thomas's Violin Concerto Number no. 3. But this is an album of... Um, all of um, Augusta Reed Thomas's works for violin, and nine of them are for solo violin. So you mm -hmm. think about the Bach sonatas and partitas like that. All right. Now, this is her debut recording, and in a way, she's an artist after my own heart because she says in the uh, booklet notes that she wanted to avoid recording music by the very specific, restricted niche of composers and their most well-known works, which can give the audience the impression the classical music is somehow a stagnant, old-fashioned art form, uh, when in reality, it is this constantly evolving organism driven by thousands of inspiring and innovative creators. So when she says that, she's basically describing adult music's entire <laughs> raison d'etre there. <laughs> okay, we want to present you with a lot of um, sort of music that you wouldn't ordinarily be hearing, mm -hmm. although we do go back to the, the really famous composers yeah. too. And not surprisingly, this album featuring nine solo violin pieces was conceived during the pandemic, so it was a project for, you know, when she was alone. All the solo violin pieces have enchanting titles. Now, the thing is, when I listened to this album, I was thinking about what you said about jazz, you know, jazz artists making their debut album. Mm -hmm. Her approach here is really laudatory. I mean, we, I applaud her desire to uh, put a new composer out. But being that this is her debut recording, we don't really have a sense, like you say, that the jazz artists mm -hmm. should record covers first, right? Standard. You got to start standards. with standards yeah. so people can see where you go with established material. I have to say, I feel the same way with, because mm. um, so she should have recorded maybe some violin sonata or concerto by a famous composer, just so that we know what her approach is or what her right. take General is going to be. Yes. So we, we understand her style a little better because we've heard these works many times by other violinists. So here we're not really getting a sense of that. And these are exceptional. These nine, I'm, I'm having a, I had a lot of trouble with this album. I'll just say it right away. It's good. The music is really good. And I'm really glad to have all that Augusta Reed Thomas music out there. Her uh, recorded catalog is growing and she's a really worthwhile composer to get 
to know. But um, having nine solo violin works that aren't really related to each other, you know, for example, the Bach sonatas and partitas, they're all mm-hmm. designed as far as their contrasting rhythms and keys and, you know, to be heard one after the other. Right. Uh, these are all just for, a, these are all solo works, just one-off kind of things, maybe for um, an encore or something like that mm-hmm. in a concert. And uh, to hear nine of them without a break, for even the programming, I would have put the violin concerto in the middle, I think, just to break up the, the sound of the violin. Okay, and I'll have more to say about that sound in just a moment. The first piece on this is uh, from 2004. It's called Rush. And also, I want to also say, she's recorded these nine works, but they're not in the order of composition. So it's not even really a catalog in a sense. So she's making Mm -hmm. some kind of program out of this. So the first one is called uh, Rush. It was written in 2004 for uh, a violinist I particularly like, Rachel Barton Pine. I'd really like to hear her play this, actually. Augusta Reed Thomas was thinking of uh, caffeine rush and uh, sugar rush images when she composed this work, <laughs> hence the title. It does have a caffeinated energy to mm-hmm. it. Uh, there's a strong attack on the violin. It starts high up. Uh, the sound is very bright on the recording, but sharp and well-focused. There's an agitated quality to the quickly bowed double-stopped chords. There's some impressive leaps in the highly disjunct material, which Bevelafa takes easily. Now, I'm some impressive playing on the first track of her debut album. Okay, so the first impression you get of this violinist is that she has the virtuosic technique necessary to play this and a lot of other complicated music. So we've got a rising star here, okay? She's got the technique. The second track, Rhea Enchanted, uh, this was um, from 2016, and it was previously recorded for cello in this recording series, but it's originally for the violin, so we're hearing it on its original instrument here. It starts in the mid-range with some sonorous, drawn-out, double-stopped chords. Uh, The piece has a soothing quality to it in its constant chords, which are attenuated afterwards. And this changes at around the uh, second minute, where we get bolder attacks and some quirky, angular figures played staccato. The more agitated middle section gives way to a calmer outer section with with a few surprising accented notes in the texture. The third track, Capris, 2005. It's a good title for this work, as it's hard to describe the work with its quick, quirky changes of material, played with loud leaps and more conjunct muted lines. So it's constantly changing. At a minute and 22 seconds, there's more dramatic material, mostly double-stopped, and some interesting harmony. The work soars into the high end by the end with the capricious quality heard throughout. Track 4, Capricious Toccata subtitled Dandelion Sky, and this is from 2015. It has a stop and start theme. Again, Capricious is a good description for this. By the minute and 36 second mark, we're hearing quick staccato notes with an angular shape to the theme. At two minutes and 17 seconds, a long harmonic is bowed out of the violin, and the rhythm feels like it's momentarily slowed down. The more Capricious material is heard shortly afterwards, and the piece ends with some quick, playful pizzicati and a quickly bowed high note. Okay, so by the time I reach this point, I didn't want to listen to any more because I'm hearing a lot of the same type of sound. This would have been a great place to put the violin concerto just so we could hear some uh, Mm. timbral um, variety. But we go on to another solo violin work called Dreamcatcher from 2006. This is the uh, piece that the uh, album gets its title from. It's expansive and it's essentially the opening and closing sections of the violin concerto that we're going to hear later. Drawn out tones shape a memorable theme at the beginning. The piece consists of bold, emphatic statements of the thematic material from the violin. At 2 minutes and 46 seconds, quirkier, more angularly shaped lines begin, but we head quickly back to the sustained tones of the opening. This ends on a dramatic high note. 
Track six, Incantation. This was written for and premiered by Catherine Tate shortly before her premature death from cancer. The piece has drawn out tones and a lot of expressive double stopped chords in it. It decrescendos from the center to some moving finishing notes, followed by a final chord. Track seven is called Pulsar. This is from 2003. Incantation is from 1995. Pulsar is from 2003. This starts high on the violin with dramatic slashing chords, and the opening of the piece is built on this sound. Double stopped chords soon enter, then some rapidly bowed lines at the one minute mark. And at this point, actually, I noticed this earlier, but then I stopped the recording and went back the next day. But here, I feel like this piece is being slightly rushed. Like this is a young violinist excited to be playing this music, you know, showing her great technique, but the music isn't really breathing the way it should. I feel like the pauses are a little too short. You know, it's sort of like um, taking your leap too close to the uh, hurdle, for example. It doesn't really breathe properly, I feel. It could use more room to breathe after the phrases end. The piece heads into quieter, more melodic phrases toward the end and ends rather quietly. And once I noticed that there, I noticed it in tracks eight and nine too. Track eight is Venus Enchanted, um, which is like Rhea Enchanted, um, previously recorded for cello, um, but it's originally for violin. This sounds more on edge than it should, and I think the piece is well-shaped, and there are harmonics too, and I like that. There's a coy sort of phrasing to this piece, especially in the quick pulling away of tone after long-held sustains, perhaps suggesting Venus's sensuality. The piece gets into the high end of the violin by the fifth minute and ends on a more anxious note, let's say. And track nine, beautiful title here, Rainbow Bridge to Paradise, uh, 2016. This one is a violin transcription of a work originally for cello. It starts at a low G and moves up to the incorporeally stratospheric harmonics at the end. And it starts with low double stops too. The music proceeds slowly and the main theme rises upward gradually, though we occasionally hear low double stopped chords. It simply fades away on the highest harmonics at the end. Okay, now that's those nine pieces. I'd like to talk about the violin concerto first. Then I'm going to have something to say about the playing on this album. Tracks 10 through 15. Violin Concerto number three, Juggler in Paradise is the uh, subtitle, and this was written in 2008. It's a brief piece. It's a brief concerto. It's seven minutes and 51 seconds, uh, despite having six sections in a single movement. Hmm. And it's described as the most expansive of all of Augusta Reed Thomas's three violin concertos. This is the only one for a very large orchestra. The others were for chamber forces. So the first section, Spacious and Elegant, starts with the solo violin. And at this point, I actually wrote this down. It's refreshing to hear sounds other than the violin. Um, <laughs> this album is um, about a little over an hour long, and we've been hearing that violin for 40 minutes. <laughs> so we finally get to hear something else here. The orchestra provides colorful timbral atmosphere as the violin plays its emphatic brief lines. This next part, majestic, but also playful and vivacious. This is a new section where the violin is a bit more capricious. This is something... Uh, Thomas does quite a lot. She likes to do capriciousness in her music, apparently. The orchestra continues to provide sustained tonal color in the form of bird-like statements in the winds and sudden percussive outbursts in the gentle, woody, and metallic percussion instruments. At about a minute and 40 seconds, we hear bass for the first time on the entire album. <laughs> what a relief. My subwoofer woke up here. At track three, 
playful, spry, jazzy. The rhythm picks up here with percussive instruments setting a perceivable, defined rhythm. The violin's phrases are short and emphatic. The fourth movement, or the fourth section, romp, has some excellent writing for the brass and winds. The solo violin is silent for the first 30 seconds of this section, then picks up the brief figures played by the orchestra at the beginning of the section. The orchestra and violin trade off material here, one picking up where the other leaves off. This ends with a bit of a percussion solo, followed by a high sustained note in the violin. The fifth section, Spacious, is a good title there, because the opening is all sustained notes by the violin and strings in the orchestra. By a minute and 48 seconds in, a melody develops in the violin momentarily, quickly giving way to sustained notes again. And then the sixth section, Dreamy and Floating. (laughs) This is really a gentle piece. (laughs) This part features a lot of percussion, surprisingly given the title, which accents certain sections of the score as the violin plays mostly long sustained notes above, with some brief figuration thrown in. Uh, The piece ends on a high violin note and ringing metallic percussion, and the work as a whole is rich in timbre variety, and and it comes across as kind of like, you know, I don't want to say icy in the sense of like like a Nordic kind of work, not in the sense of being, you know, just... Not, not expressive, but it, is, it it felt kind of Nordic to me. Anyway, this is a remarkably bold debut album of music by a contemporary composer, by a young violinist. I chose this album for Thomas's music. She was the uh, it was an album full of her music. She's a contemporary composer, and I wanted to hear more and talk about that. But it winds up being more Bevilacqua's album than Thomas's, and that's because I feel like she's taken on too much. She doesn't have the variety of tone necessary to put across nine very different works for solo violin. And like many young musicians, her energy makes her rush forward rather than find the pocket and let phrases breathe. That comes with time and experience. And I don't mean to criticize her because we can hear this is a major talent that's um, on its way. I just think this is a little bit of a miscalculation for a first album. We had a similar issue with uh, Johan Daleen's recording of Sibelius and Nielsen last year, Mm. where we felt that his tone, he couldn't or didn't or couldn't yet vary his tone enough. And we said, well, we want to hear this tone mature. I feel the same way about Bevilacqua's tone here. I think her range of expression will inevitably grow and deepen as years go by. But this music on this uh, album really required more, especially since it's unfamiliar to most listeners. So this is a contemporary composer. It needs something special to make it stay in the ear. Mm. That said, she's got the necessary virtuosity to be able to put the difficult passages across and make the individual work seem like an integral whole. So she's got a sense of form, and that's that's good too. Um, she's better in the concerto um, because she has to interact with the orchestra there, and it helps her pacing a lot. So that's uh, I thought that was the highlight of this album. I think that's all I have to say about this, really. So we have all of uh, Augusta Reed Thomas's solo violin works on a single album, and her catalog is growing. And to be honest, we're unlikely to hear, and sadly, unlikely to hear better performance of the, these works on record anytime soon. One can only hope, though, that somebody else will take them up and record them. But there you have it. You know, I feel like the uh, soloist here has to like disappear a bit more for the contemporary composer's music to come through. But it wound up being the ears were more on Bevilacqua than on the music, I felt. So that's my feeling. I think the music is all worth hearing, though. And I think you should get familiar with uh, Gus Reed Thomas's out music and uh, keep an ear out for this young violinist. She's only going to get better with age. I would like to have heard these, as you mentioned, uh, broken up more, maybe yeah. interspersed between you know other works with different instrumentation. So it was a bit of a stretch 
for me to hear all nine of them in a row. I know. It was hard. <laughs> but, I, I had um, to go back three different times. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't even split it up into two sec, two listening yeah. sessions. But yeah, as you say, she has the technique uh, to uh, play this music well. And I found actually the character of them, I found to be kind of introspective and they're short. And actually in Thomas's orchestration, as a general characteristic, I thought it's kind of sparse in the instrumentation, but also interesting tones and textures. Uh, use Her use of instruments and colors of the orchestra, even though it's sparse, it's kind of unique. Okay, and, you're talking about the violin concerto now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, of course, the solo violin by itself <laughs> yeah, is just... sparse. So I found even though, you know, as I said, the solo violin was a bit... Uh, extended for my listening attention it was rather easy to listen to and her music kind of draws you in to hear what's going on the lines are very clear but yeah maybe just the programming and as you say yeah. if i heard these sort of uh, maybe broken up with other violin works in a different kind of uh, ensemble setting they would have been better for me personally. But they may be very interesting for violin players uh, to listen to these. Well, the works themselves. Them the works themselves. Maybe yeah. somebody might want to take up one of these um, solo works and uh, start yeah. performing that. And as a young violinist, only 21, I guess we can't expect all that much. So the next thing I want to hear is her on some other you know, works with more interplay. Let's hear more of Thomas's work and let's hear this young violinist uh, do some more different things in the future by all means and for me a real discovery was the composer on this uh, third album uh her name is lotta venakoski and she's finnish and uh, this is three orchestral works by her okay so we have the work uh, sigla for harp and orchestra that the soloist there is sivan magen and for all three works we hear the finnish radio symphony orchestra conducted by nicholas collin i'm guessing <laughs> that's how he'd say his name and this is on the ondine label oh did i mention the um i didn't i don't know if i mentioned that the uh the augusta reed thomas album was on the nimbus label who are british i okay. kind of went by that because that's another label we haven't talked about on this recording all right so this is on the ondine label we have a uh, ondine is one of my favorite labels they tend to cover the uh you know the whole finnish uh mm. landscape there so Venikoski is, she's finished, as we said, and she uses a rich palette of tonal color. In fact, to the point where I would say that the tonal color is the purpose of these uh, yeah. recordings, because they don't really have much to grab onto as far as, um, well, there's no melodic material, but as far as like these little sort of figures, which quickly right. change, it's constantly got you moving, but it's really the tonal color that drew my ear. And I think it's going to draw the listeners ears too. It says that she, in the notes, that she's uh, not restricted to musical pitches, which I noticed, but also, <laughs> yes. but also incorporating noise as required. Don't let that put you off. It's There's no off-putting noise, let's say. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I have like noise and sound, but often those, that noise is a very kind of natural yeah. kind of sound, the sounds of the environment and so forth. Right. So. Yeah, it's not noise like uh, that you'd hear on a city street or something like that. Although I love that too in some of these older <laughs> like Edgar Varez works and mm. things like that. Anyway, the notes also indicate that the titles of Venikovsky's works often encapsulate the initial spark that catalyzed the composition's process. 
Um, she says there has to be an all-pervasive idea from which you can derive the title, the sound, and perhaps even the harmony. So hmm. the um, title is actually part of the music, apparently. It's kind of in- integrated in. It's a pretty interesting idea. Okay, the first work we have is called Flounce. It's about five minutes long. And it's a fiery, it says here, orchestral piece. I didn't really find this fiery, but that's what the booklet note says. Hmm. Uh, commission for the last night of the proms. This is the one that was for the last night of the proms. I was getting confused with the um, okay. earlier one. Okay. And it was conducted there by Sakari Oromo and was um, excellently received. Now, for those listeners who aren't familiar, we have mostly American listeners. I don't know what they know about the last night of the proms. It's held in uh, London. And the proms is sort of a concert series, but the last night of the proms, I think they take all the chairs away, people stand, they dance, they make noise during the playing. So it's very informal. Mm. It's it's a bit of a wild uh, night. And it's very traditional for that to happen. And it's also an honor to have a piece uh, premiered there, as this one was. They have to be short. <laughs> okay. mm. Anyway, it's since been performed around the world, this work called Flounce. As for the title, Venikoski was intrigued by the multiple meanings of the word as a verb, like it can mean to charge, leap, twist, or prance, hmm. and as a noun, uh, like a fringe or a decoration, a flounce. Uh, actually, not too familiar with that usage. But many of these associations are identifiable in the music. It's a brisk scherzo. Instrumental groupings and techniques are in constant flux. That's really true of her music in general, I would say. Mm. But the piece also accommodates a calmer lyrical middle section. Anyway, the first thing I noticed about this album is the sound quality is rich and vivid with some fantastic chest cavity pleasuring bass and bass drum (laughs) sounds. Get that subwoofer revved up. The harmony is on the harsh side, but the piece comes across as fun. Now, the notes describe it as fiery. As I said, I'm not really getting that quality. I'm amazed at the audible detail in the recording caused by both the spacious orchestration, so that's the composer's expertise there, of a large force and the fantastic recording, not to mention the playing. I'd say that the conductor, Colin, conducts this on the careful side. It could be conducted more aggressively uh, and cause more excitement, I think, but it sounds like a difficult work, and I'm perfectly happy with this performance. All the, uh, the timbral variety comes through. And we get enough time to hear it. The fantastic tonal colors come through strongly. At the 3 minute and 10 second mark, we get a quieter woodwind middle section. And I can see why this made such a big splash at the last night of the proms. It's pretty appealing without being like an earworm or anything like that. It's It's got a fun sort of rhythmic quality to it. Okay, tracks two through four are a work called Sigla for harp and orchestra, composed in 2022. So this is just last year. And uh, Sivan Magen is the harpist. Uh, The title has different meanings in different languages. In Italian, it means a jingle. In Icelandic, it means sailing. And in Tagalog, which is the Philippine language, native language, it means vivaciousness or enthusiasm. And Venikoski wants the various meanings of the word to be identified with the music according to the listener's perception. So you're part of this uh, composition, listeners. Mm. Uh, She says that in the concerto, the harp is the motor that brings the colors of the orchestra to life. That's a pretty good description of what we're going to hear. The three movements are simply called Sigla 1, Sigla 2, and Sigla 3. The first one uh, begins with minuscule gestures but soon blossoms into a rhythmically vivacious, colorfully sparkling and airy music where soloists and orchestra engage in a close-knit dialogue. That's from the booklet notes. 
for my listening, the beginning is rather quiet, but right away, there's a lot of orchestral color sparkling through the speakers. Uh, the harp isn't played in a traditional way here, so you're not going to hear all those nice angelic arpeggios. She's sort of reinventing the instrument and getting a lot out of it. Uh, there's scratching and heavy attack that alters the sound of the instrument, and I have to say I was intrigued. The movement um, seems to rely on those orchestral colors, and the harp is more interested in rapid effects and its, and its timbre than in any identifiable thematic material. And the same is true of the orchestra. I'm picking up musical gestures more than any theme, like quick plucking of high notes and glissandos with the nails, making the harp sound like someone scraping their fingers on the strings of a piano. There are constantly changing rhythmic patterns too, uh, sometimes making the material rhythmically abstract, sometimes propelling it forward in identifiable rhythmic patterns. This is a unique sound for a harp concerto and very intriguing. Uh, interesting timbral texture on the two chords that end the movement as well. Track three, this is the second movement, Sigla two. Here, according to the booklet, Wendakowski generated a musical motif from the letters of the title Sigla, and this movement provides a contrast to the vivacity of the first movement with a fragile and almost pointillist soundscape of tiny gestures. The harp dominates while the orchestra provides background color. And we hear at the beginning distant rumblings and a clarinet that sounds a bit like uh, tinnitus at the beginning. <laughs> uh, any musical shape takes time coming into being, and there are boinging and sliding pitch sounds on a plucked instrument. And I'm wondering if it's the harp, because I've never heard a harp sound like this before. We start hearing quick short glissandos on the harp, and finally some crystalline notes toward the end of the first minute. At 3 minutes and 33 seconds, the harp gets some time alone and plays the closest thing to traditional thematic material that we've heard up to this point. The orchestra comes back in with distant sustained strings, and the movement ends on a mysterious note. The last movement, Sigla 3, is the most extrovert. It starts with some wild plucking and scraping from the harp. It's fairly traditionally played in the first minute after the opening, with the rest of the orchestra providing odd dramatic sounds. The rhythm occurs in blocks, starting and stopping, at times lurching. The harp is played with a strong attack, resulting in occasional muted or boinging sounds. Boinging, that sort of thing. <laughs> By the third minute, a consistent upward-moving repeated pattern is established. Some more unique harp sounds are heard at 3 minutes and 20 seconds, as quick short glissandos bring the material downward in frequency. The harp is continuously playing some pretty virtuosic, if untraditional, material in this movement. I'm enjoying the sparkle from the harp from the 4 minute 30 second mark onward. Uh, the movement overall has a kaleidoscopic quality with the material constantly and smoothly, though changing rapidly from texture to texture. It's a feast for the senses, and the piece rather quiets via a slow decrescendo up to the 7 minute 30 second mark, and it sounds like it's over, but then bursts out for one more aggressive outburst, ending on a bass drum hit that opens the chest cavity again. Uh, beautiful sound <laughs> quality on this recording. The next uh, piece, uh, Sedesim, tracks five through seven, is an orchestra work, and this was recorded at a different time, so it, it, it sounds, the, the sound quality is still excellent, but it's not as impactful as the first two, although it is impactful. Uh, so if you're noticing any difference, that's why. Anyway, Sedesim means 16 in Latin, it's the number 16. And it refers to the year 1916 with the reference point of the three movements. Uh, the work was commissioned by the Sibelius Academy Symphony Orchestra for its centenary in 2016. And Wenikowski felt 
drawn to sketching three views or moods from the time when the orchestra was established in 1916. That's kind of a nice uh, mm. idea. Okay, the first movement has an unpronounceable title. <laughs> let, let me see if I can try this. Tiger Flecker, I don't know, I can't speak Finnish. I don't know. Spanda Strangar Stjadnor Utan Zvindel, ES Ooh. 1916. It means tiger spots, tension strings, stars devoid of dizziness. Huh. And it's the final line in a poem by uh, Violetta Skimningar. The title is called Violetta Skimningar, which means Violet Twilight, by the Swedish-speaking Finnish poet Edith Södergran, who lived from 1892 to 1923, in her debut collection of poems uh, from 1916, which is simply called Dichter, or Poems. The poet died young of tuberculosis, and this movement begins tentatively on the threshold of silence, but grows through a mysteriously hissing field to a fantasy that gleams and glitters in constantly shifting colors and lights. That's right, constantly shifting colors. You could say that about every movement you're going to hear on this recording, <laughs> and that's not a bad thing. Okay, so this starts at the threshold of hearing, as it says, with a gorgeous harp harmonic and rumblings in the percussion and strings. There are atmospheric sounds, again, beautifully captured and fully dimensional on the recording. The piece makes a very gradual crescendo with loopy high and low patterns up to the second minute, after which we go to a new section with lots of activity in various instruments. Again, it's the timbre that the ear catches here, like the sound quality of the individual instruments although there are repeating patterns to grab onto. There's a big chaotic climax at around 3 minutes and 50 seconds that quickly diminishes into new quiet material, mostly in the flute, and I hear a marimba in there, among other percussive instruments. There's one motif that reappears throughout the movement, a piano-like repeating note. You'll notice it. It's in fact this repeated note in the high end of the piano that leads to the end of the piece. There are very faint, tinkling percussion sounds afterwards. The second movement is called Zone Rouge, and it says 1916 again. This movement takes us from the glittering colors of Södergren's fantasy world to the killing fields of the First World War. Oh, <laughs> how cheerful. Anyway, the title alludes to the Red Zones areas in northeastern France covering more than 1,000 square kilometers that were so heavily contaminated in the war as in the destructive Battle of Verdun in 1916, that they became uninhabitable. It is estimated that cleaning the terrain of human and animal remains, toxic chemicals, and unexploded ordnance will take some 700 years to complete at the present rate. Wow. Something I hadn't ever thought of before. Man, hmm. another reason not to engage in war. This uh, movement really explodes on and then suddenly goes quiet with a quiet trudging rhythm that has a squishy quality to it. So I'm guessing walking in the mud. Mm. Excellent creative orchestration to achieve that effect. There are a lot of odd harmonies and compelling timbral combinations at the beginning. And by the three minute and three second mark, we've arrived at a prolonged climax to a crescendo with loud, impactful percussive effects. The percussion sounds great and impacts well, but not as fully as in the first two pieces. The material eventually decrescendos to a squeaky violin line at about the 4 minute and 40 second mark, whose pattern gets passed to the flute, decorated by wind instruments, and then light percussion. The atmosphere of this movement is mostly haunting, and the instrumental combinations change too rapidly to explain here. Listen and enjoy them as they pass by. At the end, the trudging rhythm is heard in the distant bass drum, with a few honks from the brass to end the movement. The last movement 
is called Melartin 1916, and this provides a relaxed, lucid finale to the triptych. And the title alludes to the composer, Eriki Melartin. He was also the director of the Helsinki Music Institute, and which is now the Sibelius Academy. And he's best remembered as a symphonic composer who wrote his six symphonies between 1902 and 1924. If we ever get a recording of them, we'll talk about them because I've heard them before and they're quite good. Almost contemporaneously with those of Sibelius, but his music was more like Mahler's in conception. Menikowski draws on the cantabile slow movement of Melartin's Fifth Symphony, which was premiered in 1916, that's probably why she chose it, and motifs from the source material can be identified in the texture pretty easily, I would say, though Menikowski adds her own rhythmic energy to it. There's a calmer middle section, and the piece has a positive conclusion. It starts breezily with quick uh, glissandos in the strings, moving up and down the string, much like we heard in the first movement, only slower there. There are textures that are easy to get comfortable with, and some actual melodies, and I'm guessing those are the sections that are coming from Millarton's symphony. They really grab the ear. They're melodic. This is the first melodic material we've heard on this entire recording. It's presented in interesting harmony, which is probably um, Benikowski's addition. Uh, A section led by winds is heard at the end of the second minute. I notice in this movement, orchestral combinations hang around for longer than they have in previous movements and works on this album. So this movement is helpful in acclimating you to Benikowski's style. I love the distant quality the material gets in the strings at the end of the fourth minute. String melodies with harmonics included, all very faint. I can tell that at the five minutes and 40 second mark, we're hearing a Melartin theme in the violin, again, because it's melodic. Then an appealing brass theme is heard at five minutes and 56 seconds, which must also be a quote from Melartin. They did say that he was sort of like Mahler in his conception. This movement is probably the most traditionally straightforward on the album. If indeed it can be called straightforward. At the, the 6 minute 49 second mark, there are some powerfully harsh brass chords that really made my day. <laughs> I don't know about <laughs> Russus over there. Brass glissandos are heard in the texture. All sorts of juxtaposed rhythmic patterns are heard in various instruments, leading to the piece's crashing ending bass drum hit. One final impact for the subwoofer there. Anyway, I thought the music on this album was unique. Ben Nikoski absolutely has her own compositional voice, and she uses the harp and the instruments of the orchestra creatively. Uh, this music is driven mostly by timbre, by the sounds of the individual instruments, that is, and it's compelling throughout. All sorts of unusual combinations of instruments grab the ear and create interesting effects. It's really this quality that mitigates the otherwise difficult tonal material, which consists mostly of short patterns that repeat and disappear and constantly morph into something else. Don't let the lack of melody or abundance of harsh harmony put you off. This is all mitigated by the scoring. Uh, The works are a bit of a challenge, uh, but you can use this one. You can use this challenge. It's an experience worth having. It's also an amazing sounding album. I want to name the uh, engineers uh, because this is really fantastic. (laughs) If I can say their names. Jari Rantakaulio was an engineer on the first two pieces. Antti Poyola was the engineer on Sedesim. And Enno Mayamets also Mayamets also did the final mix and mastering. The executive the executive producer was Rajo Kilunen, and recording producers were Laura Hekinheimho on Siglo and Sedesim, and Suppo Sirala on Flounce. And that's what I have to say about that. Yeah, it's very colorful music here. 
interesting timbres, as you mentioned, but also just sounds. And what I should say about that is, you know, there are some people who are actually more interested in sound than in music. Uh, they mm. actually like just sound qualities. And I, I like both. I mean, I'm drawn like to music too. by sound, yeah. And certainly, I think, you know, if you play an instrument, your sound or your own timbre is the most important thing because that's your voice. Uh, right. But this might also be of interest to sort of audiophiles who really want to just enjoy sounds from their sound system. Pick yeah, up this, this recording. This will give you some interesting things to uh, you know, test your system with. Yeah, if you're buying a new stereo, you might want to have this uh, album handy to uh, check out the speakers with you know, before yeah. you buy because it's really an impactful recording. And I like timbre a lot, but what I was kind of intrigued with with the sounds here is sometimes these orchestral sounds actually impressed me as being closer to nature than mm -hmm. instruments. So, like woodwinds evoking real bird mm -hmm. sounds, you know, you know, sort of flocks of birds with overlaying rhythms and you know, getting really dense. Also, kind of the movement of the wind and water. And also, that was also related to the sense of pitch that she uses in her music. The pitch shifts, but it seems to be kind of an environmental shift, the way the wind changes pitch with speed or moving objects have that kind of Doppler effect. So you get a real sense of environment mm -hmm. surrounding you in the sort of scape of tones here as you mentioned there's not a lot of melody development in this music but there are sometimes small segments of little melodic themes that will stick with you and you'll be reminded of them again but they don't necessarily get connected or developed into anything greater but certainly for tone color and unique sounds and use yeah. of the harp and other things this is a standout recording as something really? that i haven't heard anything like before Really special. Okay, so before we move on to the jazz, I want to just mention one more album. If you're someone who's interested in women composers or just great music, this here's another album that you must listen to. It's uh, called Les Heures Claires, the complete songs of Nadia and Lily Boulanger. And this just mm. came out on the Harmonia Mundi label. Uh, the performers are uh, Lucille Richardot, is a mezzo-soprano, and Anne de Fournel, the pianist, and there are some other instruments on the on some of the tracks as well it's a three cd set of uh, all of their songs and that format is a little too much for this podcast so you couldn't really program <laughs> that it would have taken us forever to get through i have heard it and i do want to recommend it because it's absolutely fantastic uh could be one of the this could be the first time at the end of the year where i pick uh an, an album that we didn't do on the podcast that i thought was one of the albums oh. of the year <laughs> It's just because it doesn't fit. I'm thinking we might have to, I might have to one day if we ever have free time, we retire. We got to start the, the adult music junior podcast where I can do like <laughs> 15 minute bits, like one CD at a time, you know, 15 minutes right. each for three days or something hmm. and have it like a separate mini podcast of adult music. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Got to get Richard to uh, design the adult music junior logo. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I finished my pour of, um, Knob Creek, and um, uh -oh. I'm not going to pour another one because uh, I'm afraid that that bottle's going to be empty too soon. So that's it for me tonight. It's all water from here on out. <laughs> Save it for a special occasion. Like, like our next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> next week, right? Every, every podcast we do is a special occasion. 
For sure. And tonight in the jazz segment, we're going to focus on the trumpet with uh, three very different and interesting recordings. And the first one we're going to start out with is uh, well, a trumpeter who's even interesting from his name, and that's John De Earth. <laughs> and apparently, from what I've read, uh, his birth name was actually John Durth, and he put the apostrophe in there uh, later. And so it sort it's of a nicer him, name, I think. He kind yeah, of of the uh, earth, the man of the earth. This yeah, and this is his new release. Came out in February, February fourteenth on Cosmology Records. Coin of the Realm. It's a pretty imperious sounding title there. Yes. I like it. I, I had come across one of his recordings many years ago, but I didn't know much about him. And looking at his resume, boy. I have to shrink this down just to uh, get in the basics. But he's born in Framingham, Massachusetts in 1950. He started uh, studying as a teenager with a lot of different teachers, including arranging with the great Thad Jones. He did attend Harvard University and later went to New York City, where he studied with the great Carmine Caruso and other teachers. And he's performed and recorded all around the world appearing on over 100 recordings, uh, working with names such as Buddy Rich, Lionel Hampton, uh, Miles Davis, Quincy Jones at Montreux, Tito Puente, not only in jazz, but Bruce Hornsby, uh, other big names, Eddie Gomez, Clark Terry, Joe Henderson, really long resume of people he's performed with. And also he's an avid composer and arranger, hundreds of compositions, including works for orchestra, and larger ensembles. He's written music for the Kronos String Quartet mm. and also the Kandinsky Trio, Dave Matthews Band, among others, and uh, Roanoke Symphony Orchestra, Charlottesville Chamber Festival, and University of Virginia Jazz Ensemble, where he is Director of Jazz Performance at University of Virginia, and he teaches improvisation, jazz trumpet, jazz composition, and directs the University of Virginia Jazz Ensemble. Well, this recording here features all of his original compositions, and so it was a little challenge to hear all this new music and figure out what's going on, but I really enjoyed this recording. And so we've got John DeEarth on trumpet, J.C. Kuhl, or Kuhl, on tenor saxophone, K-U-H-L, Daniel Clark on piano, Peter Spar, S-P-A-A-R, on bass, and Devon Harris on drums. This was recorded in November of 2021, and I liked the name here, Space Bomb Studios. Cool name, <laughs> in Richmond, Virginia. Wow. And we're going to start out with the title track, Coin of the Realm. This one gets going with the 32-measure intro of some angsty tenor sax <laughs> improv from <laughs> Kuhl over an ostinato bass and left-hand piano figures. Uh, Harris has a heavy beat and fills going on in the drums. The rhythm section keeps that groove going, and the horns with Dearth joining in take a harmonized modal melody line that starts intense and syncopated long note hits and clipped phrases into some trills. As it moves along, the rhythm section lightens up and transitions into a swing beat, and the horn lines kind of turn into a happier swinging theme. And Dearth and Kuhl work out of that with simultaneous improvised lines. The original groove feel returns with the ostinato and the bass, and Clark is up for a piano solo. It's a mix of flowing melody lines and rhythmic figures as the beat changes up to swing with walking bass and back to a more open and snappy feel. Dearth solos next, 
starting with some speedy and agile phrases. He has a very centered and warm tone that you'll notice right away from this tune. And he uses a variety of articulation with anticipation, creating spaces between his ideas. A nice rolling piano figures from Clark underneath. And the rhythmic feel shifts below the solos and sections uh, for 64 measures in total. Uh, Spar has been doing nice work mixing up the bass rhythms underneath everything, and he gets his own shorter solo next with snappy lines and a clear attack. The horns return with melody lines and improvisations over some grooving by the rhythm section, and it simmers down, thins out to an ending. It's an interesting start with a lot of rhythmic transformation over the course of this tune. Track two, the overture slash Shady JD. Hmm. And an interesting free-flowing intro of horn lines over waves of piano and drum swells. I guess that's the overture part, because after a hold, the horns pick up into a 32-measure melody line over a loping beat that has a returning phrase to hook you in. Uh, there's a 16-measure transition section that has Kuehl blowing some solo sax before Doroth joins back on some lines that have low sax scoops in them, getting right down there. It's a kind of anticipation building break and then 16 measures of the original melody line. And Kuehl and Doroth trade solo sections of 16 bars and then 8 bars before working some simultaneous playing together. Again, I'm noticing Doroth's unique articulation and snappy rhythmic phrases. Clark gets a piano solo with rippling lines and very punchy chords and trills, and they finish it off with 16 measures of the original melody line and held out horn notes at the finish. Track 3 is called Mood. It's a delicate solo rubato piano intro from Clark with some bluesy twists to it. The horns come in with a melody line and an uplifting legato lines, and Earth takes over with the gospel melody solo and then trades it over to Kuehl. Harris has a thick brush beat going with Spar's pulsing bass. They join together for a return of the uplifting lines over ringing piano from Clark. Dearth and Kuehl trade solo lines then. And Dearth more snappy and Kuehl more flowing, uh, working into a return of the opening line to play around. Uh, Clark gets a little tasty piano interlude, showing a nice sense of touch. And then the horns are back for more unison lines, and they really swell to a climax. They get some interplay over rising chimes from Clark and into some final rising phrases and a harmonized ending. It's a nice arrangement, and I like the exchanges of interplay between the horns. It really gives a kind of conversational quality to it. Track 4 is called Signal, and this one's just a short solo trumpet piece from De Earth that has him bright and clear at the start with interesting harmonic directions in his lines. Things get speedier, and then some staccato articulation, a bit of Spanish modally tinge to it, hmm. and it ends up in a low raspy trill. Sort of a palate cleanse uh, with just trumpet tone there. Before, track 5, Dust. This one's a slow, softly flowing ballad with a unison horn melody over sometimes rippling piano figures from Clark. The meter seems to change over the course of the melody, or at least the phrasing. Uh, I'm not sure that I could pick up a repeating pattern uh, over the course of the melody. Clark continues on with some solo lines on top from De Earth. The horns come together for some exchanges before Kuehl has a liquidly kind of solo, really great tone in his flowing lines. Back to Clark for some nice solo piano with trickling lines and attention to dynamic contrast. And De Earth joins back 
for some more trumpet, and then Spar gets some warm and thick bass improvisations. The horns return with the unison melody line into some final improvisations with cool half-valve effects from to Earth. Here the music just blooms out like a flower, really, without force, and the exchange of solo lines, rather than extended solos, adds to the kind of natural unfolding of the tune. And as we go on, that seems to be a character of the way he arranges his tunes. Track six is Nell, like death Nell, K-N-E-L-L. He's really direct with his titles here. Yeah. <laughs> a lot right of one more titles in this album. And this one sort of gels together gradually over the 24-measure introduction. Spar has falling intervals and held out one-note figures in the bass and another little bass line with piano that you can follow. Uh, Harris is decorating with cymbals and gradually putting together a pressing beat. And Earth and Clark both have darting improvised lines. The horns come in on an airy unison melody that has some fun rhythmic surprises to it. Clark has engaging fills around the phrases. I'm not sure of the exact structure because there's a lot of variety, but it's a long melody ending in a section of improvised exchanges uh, between De Earth and Kuhl. And track seven is Sarah's Bracelet. This is a rhythmically fun one from the start with a bouncy syncopated ostinato bass intro for eight measures over light cymbals. Clark adds some piano and the horns wispy improvisations as they go around uh, that once again. Uh, the happy major horn melody is uh, kind of triplety and bouncy and has some tricky syncopations in the phrases. There's a little section of wispy improvisations before we hear the first section again, then a contrasting section with a more flowing horn line composition that split off into separate lines, uh, more into a little uh, bass break, and then the first section again. Bass ostinato and a clicky Latin drum beat from Harris make a setting for free and airy sax solo from Kuhl. He gets a little spiritually squawky <laughs> a la Pharaoh Sanders uh, uh, after De Earth joins in for a tagline on trumpet. And Clark has some pretty rising piano tinkles underneath to transition to De Earth's solo. And he builds up from soft, simple phrases into speedier figures with nice melodic connection. Uh, then slows things down into some repeated note ideas over Clark's rumbling piano figures. Harris gets the drums busier, pushing De Earth on. He adds a lot of sort of anticipation building space between phrases and continues on with little figures of flurries after the tagline comes back to a soft ending. Clark has uh, some piano time next, starting with some accented chiming chords. He gets softer, leaving a lot of space between ideas, getting into some relaxed phrases, kind of meander, and then speedier lines and descending trickles and percussive chords. There's a section of some new softly articulated descending horn lines over the dreamy groove and soft piano soloing as a transition section to a final couple runs of the first melody section, repeating the final phrase to build up to the ending. At 12 minutes and 11 seconds, it's the longest tune on the recording, but it's a nice dreamy little journey. And that's it. I enjoyed Dearth's compositions a lot. Uh, they have a freshness to their character, and the structures and lengths of phrases are often unique. Uh, rather than a kind of pattern of melody and then soloing in order, he mixes sections of improvisations enjoyably throughout the tune. Uh, the trumpet solos are always very musical, 
with connected melodic ideas, and Earth has a warm sound, uses variety of phrasing and articulation that makes each solo unique. I also enjoyed Kuehl's versatility in solos, kind of matching the mood of each tune, also taking some chances in his uh, improvisations and ideas. It's a tight but flexible rhythm section too, with interesting solos from Clark, and I'm really interested in hearing more of Dirth's playing and his compositions. Yeah, I had mentioned uh, that the um, the titles were very direct, and it turns out that the, the playing matches that. It's very direct as well. There's a lot of musical depth, I feel, on this album. I was getting that impression because I found myself wanting to say, oh, I'm going to have to hear this again because I, I felt mm. like I was missing a lot. You know, that <laughs> that's how yeah. I know when there's musical depth. I, I got to hear this again. And in the soloing. The tunes do entertain, so but they're not merely entertainment. These are thought-provoking performances, or you could say contemplation-provoking in the sense that they have you thinking or wondering what's uh, coming next after you've just heard, yeah. because there are a lot of surprises in these compositions. It really had me on my toes. There are a lot of subtle surprises, the way the solos are structured. There are simple solos. There's question and response by the brass, this sort of thing. Uh, there's a sense there's more to this music than you're hearing when you first listen to it. To me, the playing had a bit of... You had mentioned Pharaoh Sanders. I was thinking pre-Love Supreme Coltrane, because I didn't think like the... That whole spirit, deep spiritual element was in there, but the the intellect was sort of there that mm. you kind of get in Coltrane's playing or this sort of directness. Yeah, I, I'll have to listen to this further, I would say. Yeah, I like the kind of freshness and the interplay in his compositions. You know, you get into a lot of kind of melody, right. trading solos, uh, melody again, and out in uh, a lot of you know jazz recordings. But here, there's a lot of mixing in of uh, improvisations, and uh, you think the melody's over, and it comes back again, and yeah. uh, interesting structures. So Yeah, and a lot of the records we listen to, which are all really great, but you'll have like, there's the trumpet solo, and then it's followed by the saxophone solo, then it's followed by the piano solo, and that'll go on for the whole album. But that's not the case on this album. They really yeah. vary the, the approach to the solos a mm. lot. You know, yeah. sometimes you'll have like two instruments sort of soloing to yeah. the one questioning, one answering, or it was really interesting. I got to, I got to hear it again. Keep mm. in mind, this is kind of inspiring for me as a trumpet player too, who doesn't get to play <laughs> as much as uh, he'd like to these days. John Durth, uh, you know, he's getting up there too in his seventies and he still sounds really strong with a really good sense of tone. So that's kind of giving me mm. inspiration to uh, keep going. Music keeps you young, I think for sure. All right, next recording, a trumpet player we've been really excited about lately, and we're going to go to the other side of his personality here, and I'm speaking of Jeremy Pelt, and that's his new recording on High Note. This came out this month, March 10th, The Art of Intimacy. Well, that sounds like a book you could write, Mike. Oh, I know all about it. <laughs> <laughs> I am the world expert on intimacy. <laughs> Since I spend so much time alone, yeah, I can, I can think about it a lot. <laughs> oh, it's a different kind of intimacy we don't want to know about. Um, this is volume two, his muse. I, I want to mention that I have volume one already, so this was like an automatic uh, acquisition for me. Oh, great. <laughs> Jeremy Pelt, born 1976 in Los Angeles and uh, also a Berkeley College of Music attendee. Uh, he's played with a lot of jazz greats, Wayne Shorter, Cedar Walton, Mike Ladon, Louis Nash, Mingus Big Band. He's got more than 20 recordings of his own as a leader as well, and many of them are on this high note label. And what we've been impressed lately with his really fiery playing, especially with Mike Ladon and the heavy hitters just recently, he just burned up right from the first track, uh, Hub, 
you know, and really showing that he, you know, has uh, absorbed all of the Freddie Hubbard tradition there. But we were also impressed, uh, it was just two weeks ago, I think, with Ivanic Prene, and he produced that album, the harmon French uh, harmonica player, and on the tune he guests on, on there too. But on this recording, we're going to switch over to the lyrical side. And, well, volume one of The Art of Intimacy came out in 2020. And so there's a few differences with the approach here. So interestingly, volume one had no drums. Yeah. So was there was an interesting thing. sense of space in that recording. So here we've got drums. Also, the addition of strings. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's jazz and strings... Well, you know, of course, there's the big recordings, Bird with Strings, Charlie right. Parker, uh, the great Phil Woods recorded in that vein very tastefully. In the trumpet, well, Clifford Brown with Strings is sort of the landmark recording. Also, Blue Mitchell, right. uh, Smooth as the Wind, I think that's the one. And uh, one of my favorites, Tom Harrell, also on high note, he has used a lot of strings as part of his sort of arrangements sometimes cello, yeah. also backing. But there's always the risk that strings can be too syrupy or as they say in New York, schmaltzy. Schmaltzy, <laughs> just yeah. like in the the Catskills. Yes, the Catskills. <laughs> I should mention also, they, I, you know, the, our friends at the uh, Same Difference podcast mm. are not fans of strings and jazz. Oh, okay. <laughs> they, they, they talk about this a lot. It's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> anyway, I think Pelt has uh, incorporated them here uh, kind of tastefully and subtly enough. I wonder. I wonder what they would think about this. This isn't. This album isn't in their ambit because they do um, standards, you know. Yeah. But, uh, so I wonder what they would think of this. Well, that's hmm. the other thing that's really yeah. interesting about this album is the choice of material, which hmm. I'll get to and expound upon as we get to it. Anyway, we've got Jeremy Pelt on trumpet, Victor Gould on piano, Buster Williams, the great Buster Williams on bass, Billy Hart on drums, and track ten only. Chico Pinheiro on guitar. And I don't know who the string players are because they're not listed in the credits, but it's string ensemble arranged and conducted by David O'Rourke. And as I said, the choice of material is a little bit obscure in spots and very interesting. So I dug a little bit into the background of the pieces and I'll share that with you as well. But we're going to start out with an original Pelt composition, For Whom I Love So Much. It's a very fluid and flowing waltz tune. Lovely tone from Pelt on his original melody. Seems to be a 24-measure construction. The strings come in on the second time around the melody, very much integrated into the total sound, and then they disappear. Williams gets a bass solo, very rhythmic and deep tone. He sounds great on this recording. Cool bent notes in here as well. Yeah. Thumping kind of. Yeah, yeah, a huge sound. Yeah. And Pelt's lyrical, uh, but really getting some forceful high register notes, too. This is not uh, CRP trumpet playing on this album at all. Uh, it covers all aspects and emotions. Some really hard attacks here as well. The strings are subtly back in uh, with support towards the end. And Gould has a piano solo. He has some very rhythmic and speedy ideas, but a cool, relaxed phrasing style that makes things really flow. And that's the same throughout this album. Pelt returns for some final melody with the strings. Hearts' cymbals are tasty and clear throughout. And so drums and the strings start things out with a new environment compared to volume one. Track yeah. two. Henry Mancini and 
Norman Gimbel, Slow Hot Wind. Now, this tune has an interesting history. It appeared on his 1961 album, Mr. Lucky Goes Latin. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> But the uh, name was also, the other title was Lujon, which comes from the percussion instrument. If you listen to the original Henry Mancini, it starts out on the intro with that instrument. It's a box with a metallic kind of uh, percussion Hmm. top that you hit and it has this really interesting very simple tone and so this tune was also known by that title but that instrument is not (laughs) included in this recording so they just go with the slow hot wind and there's no strings on this one but an interesting start it sounds like Gould is holding down piano chords silently and then strumming the strings inside to create the tone so they get their own unique instrumental start uh, here anyway. Uh, Williams gets a thick and slow bass groove going with Hart's distant clicky drum groove. And Pelt has a melted butter kind of tone on this great Mancini melody. He adds little touches of vibrato very nicely. And Gould, a tasty piano solo, great relaxed phrasing again. And Pelt has a lyrical and melodic solo, but builds some harmonic tension. And he gets a great half valve squeeze note in there too, and continues on to a final melody phrase. I wrote about this track that it has a real lava lamp feel. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Track three is If I Ruled the World, and this is by Leslie Bacuse and Cyril Ornadel, which originally from the 1963 West End musical, that's London, uh, Pickwick, which is based on Charles Dickens's The Pickwick Papers. Hmm. And... Tony Bennett recorded this tune in 1965, had a number 34 hit with it. Uh, A string ensemble intro, it's quite dreamy. Pelt enters with the melody, warm and fluffy in the middle register, and the strings come back in under him. It's a very short three-minute straight playthrough of the tune. The ending builds to a nice climax with the trumpet line getting up higher and Pelt getting a shining tone before a soft descending end. Track four, I Can't Escape From You. This is by Richard Whiting and Leo Robin. This was written for the 1936 Paramount film, Rhythm on the Range, and was introduced in the film by Bing Crosby, who sang it to Francis Farmer. And Crosby also recorded it for Decca Records in the same year with Jimmy Dorsey. And it was on the hit parade for 11 weeks. Hmm. Well, Gould and Pelt started out together rubato, but with a kind of forward push for Williams and Hart to join in with a slow, steady procession. Strings join in on the way too. Pelt has some nice runs on lines in the bridge section. It's a very smooth phrasing. His solo is a bit playful with intervals and a few half valve notes. The strings get an interlude before he returns with the melody to a slowed down ending and lines that reach down in the lower register. Track five. There'll Be Other Times. This is a tune by the uh, English-American pianist, Marion McPartland, uh, also Mm. famous for her radio show, Jazz Piano Interviews. And uh, so Gould and Williams are locked in tightly for the start here with lots of space between notes where you can hear the subtle texture of Hart's brushes if you listen very carefully. Pelt comes in with a longing melody, Harmon mute on this one here, great full tone and relaxed phrasing to match the very low kind of molasses-like movement of this ballad. 
Gould's chords fill and ring out underneath, and he gets a slowly unfurling solo. Pell comes back for some muted soloing, making the most of the tone with articulation and note choices, and continuing with some melody to the end. Track six, this one, kind of a rare tune, I believe, Don't Love Me. This is by a songwriting team of Katz, Ravelli, and Roberts. And Katz and Roberts wrote a lot of things, particularly collaborators for children's songs. However, this tune, the only other recording I can find of it is by Coleman Hawkins, the Coleman Hawkins Quintet on uh, Impulse 1963, Today and Now. It's kind of an interesting choice here. We get a string intro and then pelts in on the melody, very warm in the lower register, and the phrases have little spaces between for the notes to sort of fluff out. It's a nice kind of effect with the way the melody is written that he can get here. The strings come back in underneath. It's slow, but notice Buster Williams' rhythmic bass push under everything. Gould shows a nice touch on his piano solo here, and Pelt has a great melodic solo uh, into a playful ending with a higher reach before it fades out. Track 7, another Pelt composition, Blues in Sophistication. Well, this one gets started with a non-bluesy melody section. There's some nice chord movement to it. Nonetheless, a heart's brushes have some good fills and accents, and wait for the break, and then bluesy smear in the 11th measure, and it's going to be blues after all. So Williams lays down a thick bass groove for some 12-bar blues, soloing from Pelt with a relaxed build-up and half-valve notes. He holds out notes to build up tension and pushes a bit higher, but pulls it back for more rounds before sassy phrases uh, to end up choruses. He always thinks he's going to just uh, bust out, but he brings it back and... Uh, hmm gives you some more subtle stuff. Williams gets a bass solo here with some cool rhythmic licks, and Gould gets into some harmonically searching phrases and tinkling runs on his piano solo. They play the opening melody again and groove out on repeats of the final four bars for Pelt to get some final improvisations until Mike, it fades out again. Yeah, I, when I heard this fade out, I shouted out a word that I can't repeat on this podcast. <laughs> Mike doesn't like the fade out. He likes to hear all of the jazz improvisation. I, I want to hear the. Yeah. I want to hear it end. I want to hear that final chord. Are they going to give me a resolution? Are we going to hit that tonic, or is it going to be one of those indecisive chords? Right. You know? All right, track eight: Two Different Worlds by Al Frisch and Sid Wayne. It's a pop song. Goes back to 1956. Recorded by Don Rondo, Lenny Welch, and Nat King Cole, hmm. in addition to Engelbert Humperdinck. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorites. Yes. Uh, George Dorsey was his real name, by the way. A string intro here with some tense rhythmic bowing to start it. Pelt comes alone over the strings, and they start flowing more. Hart starts making out the tempo on cymbals and brings the trio in with the beat. It's a nice melody. Uh, with lots of repeated notes that Pelt has soft articulation for, and it also has higher register lines for him to get a more glowing tone. Gould has a gently flowing piano solo over great bass throbbing interval phrases from Williams, and then Pelt returns with a soaring line and some speedier licks into a final melody run with final improvised lines. Track 9, When She Makes Music. It's a tune from 1960, uh, Marvin Fisher and Jack Siegel. This was recorded by a lot of people, uh, vocalist Peggy Lee, Julie London, the great Joe Williams, uh, also 
pianist George Shearing. A piano, and I think, uh, yeah, this is cello here uh, in the opening. Pelt comes in on the meandering melody line, uh, traced with chords by Gould, and the cello has lines underneath. It's a nice arrangement. There's no drums or bass here, just the three instruments. Gould has a short piano solo with some nice little figures, and then Pelt gets some short improvisations. The cello returns underneath to work back into the melody and a pretty ending. Nice arrangement. Sounds bigger than just the three instruments. And we're going to end uh, things up with another Henry Mancini tune, Two for the Road. And this is from 1967 film with Audrey Hepburn, Albert Finney, first recorded by Henry Mancini and his orchestra, but later done by Peggy Lee, uh, a jazzier version, Carmen McRae and George Shearing, and Vic Damone. That's a familiar name. Yeah. What else well, did he do? He's from Brooklyn, and yeah. his real name was Vito Rocco Ferranola. <laughs> How about that? Vic Damone is Italian sounding <laughs> enough. God. Well, he's a great vocalist, uh, and, and uh, he sort of modeled himself after his favorite singer, Frank Sinatra. So you can hear a lot of Sinatra in his voice, but a great okay. voice. Anyway, here, the one track with Chico Pinero uh, joins on guitar, and it's just a duet guitar and trumpet with pelt and uh, Pinero starts it out with a rubato intro the guitar sounding really dark and a bit distant kind of interesting effect pelt sounds warm and rich in the lower register as this one flows along easily it's another great mancini melody and as Pinero continues on well we get a surprise uh, vocals from jeremy pelt and well, I have to say, he's no Vic Damone, <laughs> but it is a, it is delicate and intimate. It's nice. I mean, it's kind of it's touching. It's it's vulnerable. Let's say that's the word they use for this. Yeah, if you think of some vulnerable. of it, like uh, Chet Baker's later recordings with just jazz guitar or guitar trio, and uh, like that kind of intimate atmosphere. So yeah, it's kind of touching. Nice way to finish up. And he gets back to the trumpet to finish it out with some final lines over the guitar. So that's it. Uh, more of the lyrical side of Jeremy Pelt. Great tone and phrasing. This one nicely balances out all of the burning up playing we've heard of him. Right from him uh, lately. lately. Yeah. It just needs to cool down sometimes from all those hot solos. Uh, what I really liked was the interesting selection of tunes. The strings are not overdone and the arrangements are varied. Uh, Gould is a really subtle and refined player on piano. And also my ear kept being drawn to Williams's great bass work. And compared to volume one, I actually liked having Hart's drums on this one too. So if you're in a mellow mood and you want to hear some beautiful golden toned trumpet with great phrasing, check this one out and get intimate. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good ending there. And in fact, um, yeah, Pelt, he's been playing so well lately that I feel like this is like an entirely different artist than was on volume one. You know, mm -hmm. he, he actually does sound like he has a lot more presence now, even though that was a great album too. Yeah, I liked this for all the same reasons you did. I think um, I, I was really fascinated by the tunes because they're they're old and they have like history behind them. Yeah, and uh, so I was really interested in that. In fact, the things what you had to say about them here, and again, the ensemble here is really great. The strings made me wonder, though. I got a, it's it's not just that the, there were strings used. I guess they're sort of appropriate for these kind of tunes, but I feel like they're not warmly recorded. Like they don't sound like they're in the same room as the. Uh, Mm. Yeah, the uh, the group, you know, the band. It kind of sounds like a mic was placed in front of one of those old timey 
Singer speaker speaker radios with two <laughs> knobs on them. Okay, yeah. You know, and I'm guessing that's intentional. I'm guessing Pelt is going for a sound familiar to him from older recordings, like from the 50s and 60s. Right. So I'm guessing that's an aesthetic choice. But I, <laughs> I would have preferred something a little clearer if he was going to use those strings. I mean, they can sound schmaltzy, but you can make them sound okay. Hmm. Yeah, I liked the the jazz group a lot. Yeah, and I wrote that this was something to put on for a romantic dinner. It's beautiful playing all the way through. Sets the right romantic mood. So if you're looking for a little extracurricular activity with your listening, this is the album to go for. You know, I've only listened to this by myself, but maybe I'll see what kind of effect this has on uh, Mrs. Russ. Mrs. uh, Russ. Sometime, yeah. Yeah, Get back to us on that. Yeah, I'll let you know. You never no, know. No, not, not in detail. You can just summarize it. Oh, yeah, of course. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, you never know what kind of effect the music is going to have on her mood, you know. Sometimes it gets objects thrown at me. Yes. Other times, I've, uh, I've it's had, lovey-dovey. I've had so. things like that, too. You think, yeah, oh, she's, she's going to love this, and then uh, it just yeah, doesn't work know. out. I don't know. Anyway, we're going to finish up with a recording everyone's going to love because it goes all the way, baby. And that's the uh, (laughs) recording. the name of the album. Yes, from the five-way split. And this is all the way from the UK on Ubuntu Records. And the reason I picked this is because one of the members, a trumpet player I've been following since I got onto streaming and was able to check out all this cool jazz from around the world, and that's Mr. Quentin Collins. And this is the debut CD from this all-star UK quintet. And we've got some really good musicians from the UK here playing in that great post-bop tradition, hard bop, and but however, with mostly original compositions here. And so we've got Quentin Collins, who... I followed from his 2019 recording, The Road Warrior. Check that out if you haven't heard it. Great trumpet playing there. Vasily Xenopoulos on tenor sax. Rob Barron, just like Kenny Barron, a good piano name to have on piano. And Matrius Hofecker on bass. I hope I'm saying that right. And Matt Holm on drums. We're going to start out with Out of Wayne's Bag by Xenopolis, so we can assume that's Wayne Shorter, I would guess. And it's a cool one to start out with, uh, a minor and bluesy post-bop theme in harmonized horn lines. Uh, There's an A section that repeats in the melody, but then it's... uh, up for some interesting directions with cool rhythmic change-ups between Latin and swing feels and fun syncopated lines. Colin solos first, and it's a really good one to start out. Speedy and boppy lines mixed with sassy phrases, half-valve notes, all with really good melodic direction. And Collins has really absorbed his Freddie Hubbard and Lee Morgan vitamins and minerals. Uh, he comes right through that trumpet tradition. Uh, they change up the rhythm feels underneath in spots for extra fun for him. Xenopolis follows on tenor. He's smooth in phrasing, but has a lot of snappy rhythmic and fast licks for an exciting solo. They play through the melody again and then keep the horns working some phrases over a piano solo from Baron before a big horn finish with Collins way up high. Nice twist to put this piano solo at the end after we hear the melody again. Track two is a Rob Barron original, Lingua Franca. It's a really happy swinging tune here, a really interesting construction. The first section starts with a stop time feel with sax answering short trumpet phrases before it gets swinging along with the harmonized horn lines for 16 bars. The next section starts the same way, but changes up for a Latin feel and then gets extended with some tricky horn figures for a total of 19 measures. Then they play both sections again. 
Colin's solos first once more. The solos keep the same alternating format of those sections, and Collins is bursting with energy and a great tone. I think I hear some Blue Mitchell influence here in his articulation and licks. Uh, Baron follows on piano over a great chug of Hofecker's bass that changes up to snappy figures sometimes. And I like the way Baron connects and builds his flowing lines. Xenopolis gets a round of trading eights, and those extra measures in that 19-bar uh, phrase length with home on drums. <laughs> and they close it out with one more run of each melody section. Uh, really good, fun tune. Track three is one from Collins, Mr. Birthday Waltz. I think it's Mr. or just MR. I'm not sure. There's both capitals, letters there. Uh, mm. There's an eight-measure rhythm section intro with nice drum work from home, and Collins comes in on the melody. It's a long one, and I lost count <laughs> trying to figure out what the structure was of it. But it has some nice harmonic twists and turns in it, and he's shadowed by Xenopolis, who's on tenor, or I'm sorry, soprano sax here. The credits say only uh, tenor, but he's on soprano. Uh, sometimes in unison and sometimes splitting off in harmonies or with little counter lines. A whole fecker is out first for a bass solo. He's got snappy rhythmic phrases and some speedy triplet ideas. Collins and Xenopolis work a little phrase together to get Collins' transition to a trumpet solo. And he's flowing nicely, a lot of agility and little triplet turns in his phrases here. Hofecker switches up to more of a walking chug on the way uh, with ride cymbal from home to push Collins along. Uh, another little horn phrase to pass the baton to Xenopolis for a soprano sax solo. He's fluid and a nice rounded tone on soprano too. Good exploration of the chord changes in his ideas. You know, sometimes you get those nasal uh, soprano sax uh, car horn effects, but Xenopolis actually sounds good on uh, soprano. And Collins restarts the melody, and Xenopolis joins in for another run. They work it into an intense modal vamp for some simultaneous soloing for a while uh, to a final ending phrase. Track four, we're going to get our only standard tune, and that's uh, Jimmy Van Heusen's All the Way, and it's arranged very neatly by Rob Barron. So the only standard, but it's a cool treatment with a bluesy horn arrangement on the intro over some cool bass and piano lines, and then some bouncy bass and piano suspense before the familiar melody comes in on the horns. Nicely harmonized and swinging horn lines and rhythmic change-ups and working into that bluesy intro line again into a sweeping and swinging solo from Xenopolis. Uh, Baron's solo is next on piano, navigating some fun rhythmic change-ups, and they bring back the bouncy bass and piano line for a couple times around the melody into a, a final outro line. It's a really nice arrangement of this tune. Yeah, very different than the, uh, this is the Frank Sinatra saying this one, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes, this is very different than that. Yeah. <laughs> yep. uh, then we got a Quentin Collins tune. A symphonatic, <laughs> check yeah. the spelling of that, kind of interesting, a Latin beat tune with a nice bass bounce to it. A rhythm section takes the eight bar intro and then they go around again with long horn notes added. The horn melody lines uh, really flow smoothly and don't miss the cool speedy bass and piano answering phrases and spots. The horn lines continue on and flow over solo piano interludes from Baron uh, before he solos on. Tasty fills and textures from home below on drums. The horns return for soft backing lines into a solo from Collins. Another cool solo here with a nice lilt to it and fun false fingering work. Xenopolis gets a tenor solo too, and the horns take another run through the melody with a few more spots for Baron to play to a slowed down ending. Another Baron tune for track six, evidently. 
home beats in an exciting drum intro for this fast boppy tune, cool speedy horn lines with bluesy licks and harmonic twists. There's a repeating A section, a B section started out by piano, then another A section, and then kind of a unique C section that builds up into a solo break for Collins to start blowing. Uh, he's really agile and speedy with great melodic licks, and the solos just follow kind of an AABA form. Uh, Xenopolis is up next with a solo of Speedy Lines as well. And then it's Barron's working uh, some cool ideas down and back up the keys uh, with more darting lines in his solos. The horns are back with that C part of the melody into a drum solo from home with tight snare and toms. And they take it around the melody again with a little extension of solo piano and uh, horn line to end it all up. Track 7 is a theme for Ernie. And this is a tune an original tune by Fred Lacey, a jazz guitarist, that he wrote for the saxophonist Ernie Henry. Uh, Barron gives a piano intro into the ballad tune, and Collins takes the melody, rich and lyrical. I wonder if he's on flugelhorn here, because his tone is so rich. Hmm. Xenopolis takes over for a melody turn, warm and fuzzy himself, with nice phrasing to a section of nicely harmonized lines with Collins, and Barron has a piano solo with an easy-flowing touch. Collins comes in on the bridge with a solo carrying on with tasty little turns, and Hofecker gets a melodic but snappy bass solo. And then Collins returns to trade-off melody sections with Xenopolis into some final harmonized lines and trills to end it. Track 8 is a Xenopolis tune, San Sebastian. It's a Latin beat tune, bass and piano, Left hand lines get a cool kind of line going over Holmes' drums for an intro. And then Baron adds some chords for another round of that before the horns come in on the melody. It has a change up to a chugging swing feel on the way. Collins gets a short eight bar solo, but then Xenopolis takes over and continues on soloing over the changing Latin and swing sections. Collins comes back for a really exciting solo with some higher register forays and Lee Morgan-like licks. And then Baron gets a solo with some fun rhythmic play on this one as well. The horns come back with a new harmonized rhythmic type of line for exchanges with Holmes' drum solo spots. And there's another round of the melody. Track nine, flattening the curve. Hmm. <laughs> Put your tongue in your cheek for that one. Hmm. Uh, Quentin Collins' original. Uh, there's an eight-bar intro of suspense building, bringing piano chords and syncopated bass and left-hand piano figures synced with cymbals. The horns take the fun, boppy melody that has a mix of exciting, bouncy phrases, stop time, and chugging, swinging sections. It seems like it's set up as a 32-measure melody kind of A-A-B-A form, uh, which they're going to follow for the solos. But the last section is extended with extra measures of tension-building horns over that bouncy bass feel uh, into a short break. And then the solo is up for uh, Xenopolis. He gets good momentum going with some bluesy and speedy licks. And Collins follows with a harmonically adventurous solo here. Uh, lots of agility and exciting phrases, taking some chances like a cat uh, jumping, but always uh, landing safely. Hofecker digs in on a bass solo here, and Baron has a swinging solo with some tension-building chords before the end. The horns come in with backing lines uh, into another run of the melody. And that's it. Well, energized modern post-bop jazz in the fine American tradition 
from the UK. And yeah. uh, these uh, fellows have exciting original compositions with unexpected twists, inventive arrangements, and lots of rhythmic change-ups. Exciting solos all around, but... Collins stands out uh, with a confident trumpet voice. He's absorbed all the post-bop great trumpet players' styles and kind of forged his own creative streak with an energetic and original voice. I really enjoy his playing, a very exciting and mature style. All fans of modern jazz, post-bop, and creative compositions should check this one out. Yeah, it's got kind of an old-school feel yeah. to it too uh, which yeah. i really like that made it like immediately appealing i was thinking of the john dearth album i was listening to this because they're very different from each other yeah. that one was got yeah. a little more you know it was kind of demanding that you listen to it whereas this is just making you feel good it's really funny what you said about you know uk you know american style from the uk it's an old american style american yeah. you know american jazz musicians have sort of moved on from this sadly and it seems to be being preserved in europe so we're still hearing a lot of this great sort of yeah. swing and um you know traditional more traditional jazz uh from european groups yeah i think of uh the young italian guy uh Cesare mm. Mecca. yeah that was a good record i yeah. wish that would come out on cd i keep checking for yeah. it but he's only got a an mp3 of that anyway yeah i was in good spirits th uh, throughout this um and they all different kinds of tracks ballads breezy mid-tempo and high-speed tracks like evidently one thing i noticed about this the, the quintet is so well matched. Yeah, everybody plays exceptionally well, and no one stands out. It's almost like they all complement each other. They're so mm. perfectly balanced. You know, like yeah. you don't say, "Oh, this guy's really on on fire today." It's the whole, the lot of them are, and it just makes the whole sort of um, ensemble just sound that much better. Yeah. Hence the name Five Way Split, right? Yeah, it really was a five way split. It's uh, excellent collective music. Yeah, fantastic. I uh, I really liked this a lot. Yeah, it'd be good to listen to while driving. Actually, yeah, whippy. We heard uh, the really young Sean Gibbs from Scotland. Right. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited about Quentin Collins' playing. Mm. I think he's got a really good trumpet energy. I'd put him up there with any of the young players in the U.S. And uh, I think they'd be afraid to uh, solo after him. I know I would. <laughs> so um, yeah, I want to hear more. Yeah, I like the whole style in this. So you got to, the two albums there with the Jeremy Pelt and this one. You can... Uh, you know, you listen to that, you know, you you pick up your girlfriend, you listen to Quentin Collins on the way to your house, and then you put on the uh, Jeremy Pelt for dinner. And you're all set. Try that out. <laughs> Let us know how it, <laughs> how it all works out, right? <laughs> anyway, yeah, continuing on um, traditional or older styles of jazz that uh, go to Europe, uh, next week, huh. uh, I haven't made all, all my picks yet, but I know one that's definitely going to be in there, and that's one that just came out yesterday. And that's uh, someone who plays swing. I think you know who I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. One of our favorite drummers, in fact. Yeah. Snorri yeah. Kirk. And okay. uh, his latest recording called Top Dog. And that's got some guest work by Stephen Riley, who played on his last album. And okay. I checked that out last night. And uh, I liked it. So I'm going to cue that up for next week. Yeah, and I'm looking forward sure to that, too. Put with yeah. it. But uh, we definitely want to hear uh, that one. Been waiting to hear some more Snorri Kirk see what I can put together with that. You know, on the classical side, I did this last year too. Next week is uh, Palm Sunday. And so we're going to go into Holy Week. So I've chosen three um, more spiritually uh, aligned recordings. I'm hmm. finally going to talk about uh, Stephen Huff's um, recording of Monpo's uh, Musica Kayada. This is, this is a great record I've been listening to since February. And I just kept putting it off, I guess, for this week. It, it has like a spiritual theme to it because it's based on, uh, I think, St. John of the Cross's writings inspired 
Hmm. It, and the other two works are vocal works. We're going to have uh, Rachmaninoff, a new recording of Rachmaninoff's Vespers, which is a fantastic okay. uh, work. I've heard those. And yeah. uh, some more of um, anniversary boy, uh, William Byrd. Oh. You know, this time his uh, spiritual music as opposed to the um, more secular music we heard with him and Thomas Wilkes uh, last week. Okay. Well, yeah. maybe I'll, I'll take a look. I, I can't remember anything on my list that was uh, outstandingly spiritually oriented, but if I see anything well, that sticks any of the, out, I'll the pick John it up. Coltrane, late John Coltrane style kind of thing right. would do, I think. <laughs> all right. I'll, I'll take you a don't look. need to, though. I mean, I, I could handle that. So, you know, all I did right. all the women this week, so. Huh, I'll see what we get. Anyway, if you want to find out uh, whatever I decide on uh, finally, shortly after this episode gets published, we'll have that playlist up. If you want to check out the recordings for next week's episode early, you can find them on Deezer. And there will also be a link on our Facebook page and so you can get started listening early. So that's it. This has been episode 108 of Adult Music. As always, thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, if you haven't heard it yet, do please check out our interview with Nicholas Sivalov. Yeah. And our Nordic Illuminations. Uh, get some insight. I think his name's going to explode yeah. in the classical music world as more people listen to his uh, great symphonic compositions and then right. discover his wonderful piano recordings as well and listen to the uh, recording we talked about too his uh, symphonies one and five it's really uh really made us want to know more about him and it might do the same for you yeah all right so more good things coming up stay on after we sign off here to hear those little promos for the other podcasts recommended and remember you can find the links to those at the mm -hmm. bottom of the description have a good week of listening and we'll be back again next week with episode 109 so until then keep listening gerald albright Rhea schneider charlie hunter Luke robillard sean jones walter beasley steve swallow something came from baltimore is a jazz blues and r&b podcast and radio show and it's not really about baltimore subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist or future favorite artist that's something came from Baltimore. And be a part of that Be More music scene. Joe Lovano, Jeff Coffin, Paula Cole, Denuso Makatani, Ann Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscrew, mostly. Hi, jazz fans. This is the founder and host of Neon Jazz, Joe Domino. It's both a weekly radio show and interviews with musicians from all over the world, like the Netherlands, New York City, and back to Kansas City, the home of Neon Jazz, covering the rich history and modern world of jazz in a fresh way, featuring interviews with the likes of our Toro Sandoval, Sonny Rollins, Maria Schneider, and countless others. Find our weekly show on Mixcloud. Subscribe to the interviews via iTunes and YouTube. We are Neon Jazz. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.